Michael, thank God. Look, I, I, I got a situation. Mike, where's that room? Arthur Eatings just stripped down naked in a deposition room in Milwaukee. You are the senior litigating partner of one of the largest, most respected law firms in the world. You are a legend. I'm an accomplice! You're a manic depressive. I am Shiva, the god of death. I am Michael Clayton. You're late. This is a $3 billion class action lawsuit. The architect of our defense has been arrested for running naked through a parking lot. He's building a case against you, North. Nobody's gonna let him do that. Let him? Who the hell's gonna stop him? I spent 12% of my life defending the reputation of a deadly weed killer. Arthur. No way. They killed the Michael. You North needs to know he's under control. They've been shook up. They need to be reassured. What are you telling me? That I'm counting on you. He didn't want to say exactly what it was. Just that it was something that would win the whole case. I'm not the enemy. Then who are you? You got all these cops thinking you're a lawyer. Then you got all these lawyers thinking you're some kind of cop. You got everybody fooled, don't you? You know exactly what you want. You gotta saddle up here, Michael, and get things under control. What if Arthur was on to something? Do you know Michael Clayton? We have a situation. Stay in the car, lock the door. What would they do if he went public? Arthur, open the door. What would they do? They're doing it. Freeze! Who called it in? Does that make sense to you, this happening It's like never that? happened. Get out. Get out of the car now. I'm not the guy that you kill. I'm the guy that you buy. Are you so blind you don't even see what I am? Do I look like I'm negotiating? Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 316, Michael Clayton. And this is listener request number 39, courtesy of Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. It's nice to see you again in the mix after the Brotherhood of the Wolf episode, which I think we recently saw coming up with a big physical media release, right? Yeah. So that's exciting. How about that? <laughs> we may be the only podcast who have referenced the 4K of Brotherhood of the Wolf more than <laughs> once in recent times. Let me get this one out of the way real quick on the Michael Clayton thing. This was bothering me. The genetic lottery of this family. Imagine being one of the brothers who's not Michael Clayton. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the fuck? Yeah. Who is it, Gene and Timmy? Yeah. Not quite with the George Clooney looks in the other two. Yeah, well, that is the curse of being a good-looking movie star. You never seem to fit into a real world. Right. One that's constructed on screen. It's one of the biggest hurdles for the audience to overcome. 
Before we dive into Michael Clayton, let's run through all of the various and sundry mm-hmm. Please. housekeeping items. Follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Wherever you found us, you can email the show, greatestpod at gmail.com, greatestpod at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, concerns. We'd love to read your email on the program. If you'd like a free sticker, you can let us know on Twitter or email, and we will send that to you. And finally, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983 and Matt Crosby. And if you would like a listener request like Aaron, you can have us do any topic you'd like, provided it's a narrative feature film and we haven't done it before. Outside of that, we are pretty much available. You can find us on Twitter or email. They do cost a little bit of money, so just be prepared for that. It's either a cash app or PayPal situation, but we'll work out all the details with you when you reach out to us. So thanks to Aaron. Let's jump into it. Michael Clayton, 2007, written and directed by Tony Gilroy. This was his feature film debut. Yeah, and for someone who uh, didn't spend a ton of time with this movie previous to this, I was like, oh, all right, here's a director I can be interested in. Not a lot of work since this movie, at least as a feature director. Well, he's now mostly involved with the Rogue One Uh and or Star Wars stuff. He also wrote most of the... The Bourne movies, and then I think he directed gotcha. the one without Matt Damon. Yes, but that's he wrote, right. yeah. I think, all of them. Or oh, cool! Yeah, most of them. Or something. Yeah, a lot of writing credits, and yeah, including, like you said, Rogue One, which is cool. The film had a budget of twenty-one point five million at the box office worldwide. It did about ninety-three million, which was pretty good. Had a reasonable amount of buzz and was very, very well reviewed. Ended up being nominated for seven Academy Awards of which it won one for Best Supporting Actress for Tilda Swinton. It was also nominated for Best Picture, which it lost to No Country for Old Men. Mm -hmm. Best Director for Gilroy, he lost to Joel Cohen for the same film. Best Original Score, it lost to Atonement. Best Original Screenplay for Gilroy, he lost to Diablo Cody for Juno. Wow, what a year this was. Best Actor. Clooney lost to Daniel Day-Lewis for There Will Be Blood. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. 07, right? Is that what it was? Yes. Best Supporting Actor, Tom Wilkinson, lost to Javier Bardem for No Country for Old Men. I wanted to add a little panache to the Oscars talk where Mm -hmm. I would say what it lost to. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if I'll stick with that or not. Well, now I'm, I'm just finding myself being like, imagine having a year like this again. Well, I think we've referenced 2007 being an incredible year Several quite times. a few times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it was. It's remarkable when you go through it, though. And now I have a whole other added layer to it because I was not a Michael Clayton guy, but I now am. Oh, okay. How about You've that? Join the club. Yeah. I don't know what it was when this movie was coming out. It was on my radar. I certainly remember it being nominated for Best Picture, but there was something that seemed very generic and by the numbers about it. Maybe the title. I don't know. It's generic and by the numbers, but what does that mean? Like, what were you thinking it was about? Like the type of movie my mom would like, like a <laughs> suspense thriller. What's wrong with a suspense thriller? Nothing. Not a lot of artistic pizzazz, usually. I will say that I did come to the party pretty late, too. Yeah. It's only been within the last year or two that I watched 
Michael Clayton for the first time. It's just one of those ones that took me a long time to mm-hmm. get to. But yeah, it, it definitely sucks you right in, and it's a familiar refrain on yes. this podcast, but it's definitely the type of movie that does not really see the inside of a theater anymore. I think we'll talk about this more later and as we go, but I think that Michael Clayton's home in 2023 is likely a prestige TV series, maybe a mini-series, something to that effect. I don't really think it's going to happen in the theaters anymore. Just a fact of life. Okay. Obviously, a few will sneak through every year, but in terms of how many every weekend, once a month, how how often are movies like this released? Not... Not very often. Yeah, yeah. If you have not yet seen Michael Clayton or would like to rewatch it for the purposes of listening to this show, you can find it for free currently on HBO Max. I think it was on Netflix maybe last year. So it's okay. made the rounds. I watched in it terms on of HBO streaming. Max. Basically, it's an airtight, sharply scripted adult drama, fully engaging, pulls no punches, chock full of dynamic acting performances, a story that sucks you in, you're engaged with it, but it also is a unique perspective into that world. It takes a much bigger story and then fragments it down into this little aspect of it. Because Uh when you think about it, what happens in this film doesn't really tell you the story of this lawsuit or the people that this chemical affected. It's not about that. It's from a totally different area of that story uh, it's grounded in a grim reality but i like how the way i picture this type of character a bag man a fixer i like how it's really a much more he puts it all on front street when he's like i'm basically a janitor i clean up messes the smaller the mess the easier it is to clean up and this is not going to be easy to clean up with the whole hit and run situation and there's a down-to-earthness about this guy's existence Whereas, like, normally the movie version is much more glorified. Yeah. You're thinking more of the the reference to Miracle Worker. Yeah, yeah. That they talk about, or maybe the wolf from Pulp right. Fiction. Yes. The wolf was what I was thinking. Well, there's two different versions of a fixer. There's actually a lot of different versions, but there's two main ones in that sense. There would be the criminal side. Yeah. Which would have a little bit more freedom to do whatever <laughs> sure. he wants. Yes. And the people who are also criminals, yeah. but they're pretending they're on the other side right. of the law. And so they're a little bit more handcuffed as mm-hmm. to what they can do. Because if they were the gangster people, I'm sure the fixer would just go shoot the guy that he ran over. And there wouldn't be any story about a hit and run. <laughs> but it may be the uh, Clooney of it all, but it, it feels like there's this desire to be the good guy. Well, yeah, that's the whole point of the movie. Yeah, that's I what I'm saying. Say. Okay. <laughs> so people are getting that then. In a sense, yeah, yeah, it's it's a little bit of like a shovel full of light against the mountain of darkness. Yeah. And what kind of impact that makes. But I think that ultimately, when you start peeling back the layers of what this is about, and you take it on a higher and higher and higher level, because at first you're like, well, maybe this is about a midlife crisis. This is about taking stock of your life. Do I want to be this person? Do I want to do these things mm-hmm. anymore? And how much can I actually stomach? And then you can take it to that next level of very basic stuff, good versus evil, how do we survive as good people, how can we stay good people, and then if you've already made mistakes and you end up being like Arthur or somebody in this predicament, 
Mm-hmm. Is it too late to go back? Is it too late to change? How does that all work? But then how does that exist in this world, this very specific world, which seemed unique to 2007? You're still in that George W. Bush era. The country is sort of enraged with itself in a way that it hadn't been in a long time. Everyone's upset about the war. It's oh, post yeah. 9-11. But the cool thing about the movie Michael Clayton is that I think that it ends up being just as applicable today because Definitely. it never really ends. We're in a vicious cycle of this, the bloodthirsty re- capitalism. Uh, corporate America, just the relentlessness of it. Yeah. The truth can be adjusted. We'll see how this goes. 2023 on the Greatest Moments podcast hasn't quite been the George Clooney run that you would think so no. far with Out of Sight being one of our most thought... disappointing downloads in a while. Well, this is one of the top tier for sure, right. the mage ones. <laughs> <laughs> I think the problem is that it feels like it's been longer and longer since there's been a crucial George Clooney film. I know. Because he's so adamant that he has to be a director, and most of the films he's directed have not been good. Well, so I didn't watch this one for years, obviously. I've still never seen Ides of March, which kind that. of felt similar to this. I actually think he directed that. Oh, did he? Okay. Yeah. I don't know if that got nominated for Best Picture, but it, there was some, no, there was some so. buzz around that during awards season two. I think it and... got nominated for something, but okay. I don't think it was yeah. Best Picture. Gosling is in that. Mm-hmm. It was okay, but I don't really remember it. I saw it in a the theater. I'll give it a go at some point. But it's just examples of bigger movies that he was in that they just came and went for me. All right. Well, very specific to you on that one. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but I, yet I'm the one that thinks he's a big-time movie star. Do you? I'm starting to come around that maybe he's not, based on the downloads that his well, movies get. Well, I think it get. just depends <laughs> like what your definition of a big-time movie star is. Yeah. You're right. Maybe he's more famous than he is a movie star. He's a bigger celebrity than he is an yeah. actor. True. Movie star is not the right word because that make he is a movie star. It's actor is what we're thinking of. Okay. A big time actor. Yeah. He's the literal definition of a movie star because he can get these projects made and he produces and directs. He's been given so many goddamn chances to direct and it has to be because he's so handsome. Yeah. Because it's not like the movies he have can been making a ton of money. Charm his way into it. <laughs> But are the movies that he's the leading man in, how often are they moving the needle? Well, that movie he did with Julia Roberts, yeah, they still sell a lot of tickets worldwide. That okay. movie still made money, like a lot of money. Gotcha. Even if it wasn't a massive, massive hit in America. Mm-hmm. It did good in America, but it also did good other places because he's kind of that level. And yep. so is she. Gotcha. Well, I'm a fan, so. Yeah, I am too. I don't know what you're trying to accuse me of. I don't like it. <laughs> but you are right that our listeners don't seem to be into his movies. Well, Aaron obviously is. He requested this. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. We appreciate it. You're on the team. You're on, yeah, you're on the podcast team. Michael. Dear Michael. Of course it's you. Who else could they send? Who else could be trusted? And I know it's a long way and you're ready to go to work. All I'm saying is wait. Just wait. Just, just, just please hear me out because this is not an episode. Relapse. Fuck up. It, I'm begging you, Michael. I'm begging you. Try and make believe this is not just madness because this is not just madness. Two weeks ago, I came out of the building, okay? I'm running across 6th Avenue. There's a car waiting. I got exactly 38 minutes to get to the airport, and I'm dictating. There's this 
this panicked associate sprinting along beside me, scribbling in a notepad, and suddenly she starts screaming. And I realize we're standing in the middle of the street, the lights change, and there's this wall of traffic, serious traffic speeding towards us. And I, I, I freeze, I can't move. And I'm suddenly consumed with the overwhelming sensation that I'm covered with some sort of film. And it's, it's in my hair, my face, and it's, it's, it's like a glaze, like a, a coating. And, and uh, at first I thought, oh my God. I know what this is. This is some sort of amniotic embryonic fluid. I'm, I'm, I'm drenched in afterbirth. I've, I've breached the chrysalis. I've been reborn. But then, the traffic, the stampede, the cars, the trucks, the horse, boom, is screaming, and I'm thinking, no, 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 reset. This is not rebirth. This is some kind of giddy illusion of renewal that happens in the final moment before death. And then, I realize, no, 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 this is completely wrong, because I look back at the building, and I had the most stunning moment of clarity. I, 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 I realized, Michael, that I had emerged, not through the doors of Kenner Bacalodine, not through the portals of our vast and powerful offer, but from the asshole of an organism whose sole function is to excrete the, 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 the poison, the ammo, the defoliant necessary for other larger, more powerful organisms to destroy the miracle of humanity. And that I had been coated in this patina of shit for the best part of my life. The stench of it and the stain of it would in all likelihood take the rest of my life to undo. And you know what I did? I took a deep cleansing breath and I set that notion aside. I tabled it. I said to myself, as clear as this may be, as potent a feeling as this is, as true a thing as I believe that I have witnessed today, it must wait. It must stand the test of time. And Michael, the time is now. The movie opens with an unhinged monologue from Arthur Edens, played by the aforementioned Academy Award-nominated Tom Wilkinson. And at this point, cold open, cold water in your face. You as a viewer don't know what the fuck he's talking about. He's rambling and ranting. They actually messed around with how they would present this, but ultimately we're listening to a man coming to grips with regret. Mm-hmm. Arthur Eden's opening off-screen monologue, although scripted as a voiceover, was also covered as a full scene with both Wilkinson and George Clooney on set and in costume. Tony Gilroy wanted to leave the option of cutting the footage of the scene, though he ultimately decided to leave the monologue disembodied and mysterious as scripted. Which is a little discombobulating, but I think it works, because I think when you're dealing with these sort of legal thrillers uh-huh. that deal with bigger issues about a lawsuit or a specific case. It's better to just plunge you in cold and let the world spin you around a little bit so that yeah. you get a little bit discombobulated, a little bit confused too. And I think that puts you in the right state of mind. I don't think that knowing the ins and outs of this chemical company or what the lawsuit is is in any way crucial to this film. So... It's better to be a little bit nervy and on edge, and I think the best way to do that is to just throw you in and have this crazy guy start talking. Well, I know. And, and you're then... a little bit like, whoa, what's going on? Why is he so upset? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wilkinson playing a little bit more unhinged than maybe we're used to seeing him, too. Maybe I'm crazy, but I feel like this is the movie that I first remember hearing about him from because he was nominated. And even though I didn't see this movie in 2007, I was definitely watching the Oscars every year. Mm-hmm. But he's the... Doctor in Eternal Sunshine. That's true, but I wouldn't have remembered yeah. who that was. <laughs> I always thought of him as more in like that type of role, though. The stable. 
Is he stable, though? He's, yeah. like, fucking a 20-year-old and then makes her forget about it. <laughs> well, more, that's more under the surface, not not really ready to just put everything on Oh, what's on that on that street? paper that you're writing and handing me? Oh, it just says legend. Oh, okay, that's what you meant. <laughs> I'm holding up a piece of paper that says stop talking about it. Stop making a big deal about it. Yeah. It's cool. It's a little teaser. We're plunged into it. There's something bigger brewing. We're seeing Michael O'Keefe, Sidney Pollock, and then... Tilda Swinton in a bathroom stall with very sweaty armpits. You love to see it. We don't know what's going yeah. on. Essentially, there's a settlement happening of a very large lawsuit involving a company called U-North. But we don't know the specifics, the yeah. ins and outs. This is like a little opening. But again, you talked about it with the way it opens up. But I, then they even build upon that because we spend a few minutes going on one timeline and then everything flashes back. Next, we are introduced to Michael Clayton, played by George Clooney. Michael is a fixer for a prestigious New York City law firm, Kenner, Bach, and Leiden, the same one associated with Wilkinson, O'Keefe, Pollock, those characters. We don't know their names other than Wilkinson is Arthur Eden's, but yeah, the other guys, we just saw them hanging around. Pollock seems like he could just be playing his same character from Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> yeah. It's just like... Doubles as a doctor and a lawyer. Just shaking people's hands when they come to his personal bathroom because he has a prostitute ODing (laughs) who's completely nude. Right. (laughs) I think we alluded to it a a little bit already, but a general idea for a fixer is basically a person who goes in and cleans up the mess after the fact. Not as much glory, but they're taking care of the nitty-gritty stuff, the low-level stuff, sometimes high-level it could be as simple as cleaning a crime scene. It could be as big as orchestrating some big plan of a meeting. Flights, getting somebody out of prison, getting somebody back into the country, out of the country, Handling whatever. situations. Yeah. And as I said, I think that they exist on both sides of the law, although you could make a strong case that <laughs> they are actually on the same side <laughs> yeah. of the law, which is the wrong side. But sometimes Fixer applies to all kinds of walks of life too beyond just what we see in this film or harvey Keitel in pulp fiction it also should be noted that michael is a gambling addict this gets a little bit confusing with the timeline too because we see him playing poker here right at the beginning of the film but then later he's referencing not doing that but then we realize that that comes later it's sort of a fuck you but one of the underlying things in michael clayton is reconciling who you are with yourself and who you've come to be because at Uh one point he references i'm 45 years old i'm broke am i really happy with who i am and what i've done and all these different things and it's a man taking stock of his life over the course of this film and it just so happens that his motivation his spark is a guy that is also having a nervous breakdown (laughs) i think one of the things that really stood out to me about this is the michael clayton character and beyond there's a ton of character development that's off screen. They just mentioning things like his whole backstory with his demons that just kind of pops up. Right. But even the Tilda Swinton character, you kind of get, you just understand the whole background there. Well, that's effective writing is where you can convey a lot in a little. Yeah. Because I think when you break this film down and go scene by scene and beat by beat, even though it does have a runtime of about two hours... It's pretty simple in terms of how many scenes they are, how they're laid out. They do a little bit of the the timeline thing to to throw you off. They give you a little bit of the ending first. 
when you're getting like 45 minutes into it, you're thinking that there's going to be a lot more plot details than there ends up being. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. And I think that you grasp pretty quickly what the idea is. I, I, I think that you could nitpick a little bit with the naivete of some of the characters or, or whatnot in terms of the story, but I think you get it. And as an audience member, you understand who these people are, why they do the things they do, and what's happening over the course of these few days. Right. Michael uses his connections and knowledge of legal loopholes for clients' benefit. One night, Michael leaves a poker game to attend to a client who has been involved in a hit-and-run crash. So he's leaving New York City, heading upstate. The, the, the douchebag who hit the jogger is played by Dennis O'Hare. The guy calling... Michael on the phone. The voice is Tom McCarthy, who okay, directed I, Spotlight. Yeah. <laughs> Just showing up as a voice in the <laughs> film for some reason. Hello? Michael. Walter. Michael, thank God. And there you are. Look, I, I, I got a situation, a big problem. A right? client of mine, he just called. He hit a guy with his car. He, he thinks he did. He thinks he hit him. Just now? Yeah, just now. 10, 15 minutes ago. He's driving home. He's home now. He's there waiting. He... Where? Uh, Westchester. I'm down here in Bermuda. He just cut me up. I'm half asleep here. Is he drunk? No, no. It's the first thing I asked him. No, he's good. He's sober. I'll tell him to stay off the phone. Right, but look, you're on it, right? I mean, you can get up there because this guy, like, he's a huge client, Michael. This is half my book, this guy, okay? I'm walking to the car right now. Okay, look, look. Let me call him right back and I'll get the address. Just, just let me know you're on the way and then I'll get right back to you with the details, okay? All right. I'll be in the car. What they did, you see, they changed the grade there. They uh, widened the street. I'm sure somebody told them that that was an improvement. But now, you see, when it rains and when there is fog and with this new angle and they've got these new, these, uh, these, uh, these sodium lamps, it's blinding. That corner right there, it is just blinding. Well, they're gonna have to work that out. Yeah, and it's not just tonight. I mean, I've been saying this for years. I mean, how many times have we talked about that corner? Dell. Mr. Greer, we don't have a lot of time here. Oh, so the circumstances, the, the road conditions, none of this holds any interest for you? What interests me is finding the strongest possible criminal attorney that can be here in the next 15 minutes. Well, that sounds ominous. We have some good relationships up here in Westchester. So what are you? What are you? You're not a lawyer? Not the kind you need. What kind is that? A trial lawyer. Somebody who can see this all the way through. That's not what I do. Okay. I think we're going to have to pull Walter back in on this. I want to get Walter back on the phone. I want to get him back into the mix. Because uh, I'll be frank with you. I don't like the way this is going. Sir, we don't have time for Walter. Your options here are going to get smaller very quickly. What options? I'm not hearing any options. I'm suggesting that you go local, and I'm telling you that there are some people up here that I like for this. Oh, great. That's it? That's what you got for me? Hey, you believe this? I've been a client at Kenderbach for 12 years. Do you think that I pay that retainer every month so I can give a place at the back of the line? Mr. Greer, you left the scene of an accident on a slow weeknight six miles from the state police barracks. Believe me, if there's a line, you're right up front. I can get a lawyer anytime I want to. I don't need you for that. We're not sitting here for 45 minutes waiting for a goddamn referral. I don't know what Walter promised you, but I can a tell A miracle you worker. That's Walter on the phone, 20 minutes ago. Direct quote, okay? Hang tight, I'm sending you a miracle worker. Oh, he misspoke. About what? 
about the fact that you're the firmest fixer or that you're any good at it? Elliot. The guy was running in the street! You take that, you add the fog, you add the, 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 the lamps, you add the, the, the angle. What the fuck is he doing running in the middle of the street at midnight, huh? You answer me that! What if someone has stolen the car? Huh? Happens all the time. Cops like hit and runs. They work them hard, they clear them fast. Right now there's a BCI unit pulling paint chips off a guardrail. Tomorrow they're gonna to be looking for the owner of a custom-painted, hand-rubbed Jaguar XJ-12. And the guy you hit, if you got a look at the plates, it won't even take that long. There's no play here. There's no angle, there's no champagne room. I'm not a miracle worker, I'm a janitor. The math on this is simple. The smaller the mess, the easier it is for me to clean up. That's the police, isn't it? No. They don't call. This little interlude, which is not essential to the plot at all and really doesn't have anything to do with the story per se, it does serve a few purposes because for a significant chunk of the audience, I think that they could definitely do with an example, a little bit of a clarification as to what a fixer is. You don't really have set hours. You're kind of an attorney, but you kind of don't really act like one. It's not like you're taking cases to court or anything like that. I I do think that it serves as a reality check too, as to like what this guy is actually capable of doing. You're thrown into a situation where it's like, this guy ain't getting out of this. Here's what I can do. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that that's a given, though. I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's really like the. I don't know if that's really a revelation to anybody except this guy who hit the jogger. Or <laughs> that may- there isn't going to be any bigger answer than this. Yeah, I don't know. It's implied that Michael's colleague also seems to <laughs> think that maybe there's more that could be done here. Well, you can read a lot into this. You yeah. could read into it that there, he would be more willing to do things than. He is now in the past. Yeah. yeah, true. There may have been more bending of the law, and now he's become a changed man. True. We just don't know what that inciting incident is yet. The details of this guy, this hit and run incident, and then the details of the big chemical lawsuit at the center of the film are almost irrelevant in terms of his long journey into night with his soul and figuring out who he is and what he does. Those are the external factors that happen to be there. But something you gain from watching the film more than once is realizing what Michael's journey is and how that's really more crucial than the details of the story, which is what I meant when I said it was coming from a weird angle. Because I think normally, and we're going to talk about a couple movies that could pair nicely with this one, because there, there are several films that sort of work in the same genre. But the difference with this one is it takes such a unique perspective of a guy who works within a system and then realizing how fucked that system is. Yeah. And then wanting to see if he can step outside of the system. All within the course of a couple of days. And then the interesting weird tidbit is that when you examine the character of Arthur, you're like, well... Both things are true. He did make a big discovery that caused him to freak out, but he also is off his medication and having a breakdown. 
Yes, they're both happening. Some pre-existing conditions at play. As he says to the man who needs his help late at night, I'm not a miracle worker, I'm a janitor. Driving home in the dawn, Michael sees three horses in a field. He stops, gets out of his car, and approaches them. Behind him, a bomb detonates in his car. Watching this now, remembering the trailers, the commercials, the advertisements, the whole marketing campaign, but then not seeing it for a few years after the fact... It's interesting to try to remember what you thought this movie was going to be based on that stuff. I remember the car exploding. I remember tidbits with characters. Yeah. He's taking his clothes off or whatever. You know, you're not sure what exactly is happening. There's a freak out. They may even say the word suicide in the commercial or something. I definitely had a lot of weird ideas as to what this possibly could be about. Never would have pieced this all together. Yeah. I was trying to look it up. There was a movie in 06 with Michael Douglas and Kiefer Sutherland called The Sentinel. <laughs> I was like thinking that this was that kind of vibe. I have to be honest, I don't know if I remember The Sentinel. Don't have any memory of what that is. More just a throwaway by the numbers suspense thriller. What I thought Michael Clayton was going to be like. The film then cuts to four days earlier. It's the portrait of a man living on the edge. Michael is in far less control of his own life than his potential proficiency at problem-solving for others would have you believe. He is divorced. He has a son named Henry. Doesn't seem like he has a great relationship with the boy's mother. There's a lot of strained feelings going on here. Not really that interested in hearing Henry talk. Plus, it was alluded to in the poker scene that Michael was involved in a failed restaurant venture Yeah, what a prick that guy is that keeps bringing up that. Well, I guess he was trying to be intimidating, psych him out at the poker table. It was a partnership with his unreliable and unstable brother, Timmy, who has a substance abuse situation. He's an addict as well. Now Michael is left holding the bag for some big-time debt now that that dream has collapsed on itself. So the 75K was part of investment money or that was a debt from his brother i think that was for the restaurant that's what i thought yeah but i it's always strange to me that with michael's career and background that this is where the investment money is coming from why i you either have the money or you don't yeah but i would think he has tons of connections to get it through different channels well not if he has a lot of history with gambling and history well with that's money true problems yeah I guess that's the piece you can read into it. Yeah, you have to turn to alternative methods. Plus, we don't really know the details of what his brother was doing and how this all came to be. Right. We're just sort of thrust into the middle of it. But I think that you're supposed to read that he's not really that put together. That's true. He's probably had to pay child support and alimony. He's probably gambled away a significant amount of money. That does seem to be the case. He's a guy that's just surviving one day at a time, just trying to piece it together. Oh, I know. We're introduced to Karen Crowder, played by Tilda Swinton. She is U-North's general counsel. She's going through some rehearsals with herself where she's practicing an interview that she's going to be doing. I felt like... She seems very career-motivated, driven, but to a fault, A obviously. little, <laughs> yeah, but also like not quite sure if she can fully play this part. A little Yeah, I definitely think that we're seeing someone who's in a little bit 
over their head. Making decisions on the fly, maybe not that well thought out. Um, you think? <laughs> but I did think this was Tilda Swinton playing off-brand a little bit. I don't know. She always what seems to be, be her brand, uh, full of confidence and actually evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little more self-determined. Yeah, self-assured, I guess. Yeah. Well, in 2007, I definitely was aware of Tilda Swinton, but I wouldn't say that I knew very much about her i always just sort of picture her as her character from the beach i don't know which movie i saw first i guess the beach but that was a situation where i don't think i knew who she was so i didn't remember that later Mm, really (laughs) it is weird imagining her having a sex scene with leonardo dicaprio it's cool i don't know if that's just because he usually dates like so much younger women and she's actually like older than him by like 10 or 15 years but it is weird when you go back and watch the beach. You're like, I would have never thought that this is something that would happen. I know. <laughs> a loan shark gives Michael a week to raise 75k to pay back the investment in the failed restaurant with his brother Timmy. So Michael asks his boss Marty Bach, played by Sidney Pollock, for a loan to cover the expenses. This is a little bit out of order, but I'm kind of simplifying yeah, yeah. that. That's basically what happens. He asks his boss for a loan. However, as this is all happening, there is currently one major issue threatening the law firm in a very real, tangible, and unexpected way. And that threat comes from none other than Shiva, the god of death. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Making an appearance in the film. Our old friend. Yes. You're saying he did this in... Oh, my God. Barry. Hang on. Arthur Edens just stripped down naked in a deposition room in Milwaukee. Oh, Michael. I took a deep cleansing breath and I set that notion aside. I tabled it. I said to myself, as clear as this may be, as potent a feeling as this is, as true a thing as I believe that I have witnessed today, it must wait. It must stand the test of time. And, Michael, the time is now. This moment, today, here, this room, this air, and this, especially this, Michael, that you're here. There's a reason. A reason. It's you, Michael. Surely you have some sense of that, how it how it pulls together, how it gathers. Nurse Michael, the secret hero, the, the keeper of the hidden sins. Tell me you can see that, Michael, for God's sake. But, I, I mean, yeah, yes, yes, the nudity, the parking lot, I admit it, it was, it, was, it, was, it was a mistake. It was wrong, it was lame, it was obvious, and therapeutically, it was completely useless, because, Michael, I swear to you, I could stand here and tear off my fucking skin, and I could not get down to where this thing is living. Six years, Michael, six years I've absorbed this poison. 400 depositions, 100 motions, five changes of venue. 85,000 documents in discovery. Six years of scheming and stalling and screaming. And what have I got? I spent 12% of my life defending the reputation of a deadly weed killer. We had an agreement, Arthur. One night. One night, right? (laughs) I look up and there's Marty in my office. He's got some champagne. He tells me we just hit 30,000 billable hours on you north and he wants to celebrate. So an hour later, I find myself in a whorehouse and... And Chelsea with two Lithuanian redheads taking turns sucking my dick. And I, I'm laying there and I'm trying not to come. And I want to, you know, I want to make it last. So I start doing the math. I think 30,000 hours, what is that? That's uh, 24 times 30. That's 720 hours in a month. 8,760 hours in a year. Arthur. No, wait, wait, wait. Because it's years. It's lives. 
and the numbers are making me dizzy. And, you know, now, now instead of trying not to come, I'm trying not to think, and I can't stop. I mean, is, is, is this me? Am I this, this freak organism that's been sent here to sleep and eat and, and defend this one horrific chain of carcinogenic molecules? Is that my destiny? Is that my fate? Is that? You promised. Is that it, Michael? Is that my grail? Two Lithuanian miles on my cock? Is that the correct answer to the multiple choice of me? You want to go off your medication, that's fine. But you call me first. That was our agreement. Sue me. We okay we... in there? We're fine. We're fine. They killed them, Michael. Those small farms, the family farms. Did you, did you, did you meet uh, Anna? No. Oh, you gotta see her. You gotta talk to her. She's she, she's a miracle, Michael. She's God's perfect little creature. And for fifty million dollars in fees, I've spent twelve percent of my life destroying perfect Anna and her dead parents and her dying brother. When was the last time you took one of these? No, 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 no. I'm not losing this. Everything is now finally significant. The world is a beautiful and radiant place. I'm not trading that for this. If it's real, the pill won't kill it. I have blood on my hands. You are the senior litigating partner of one of the largest, most respected law firms in the world. You are a legend. I'm an accomplice. You are a manic depressive. I am Shiva, the god of death. The insinuation is that the firm will be finished if Michael cannot get Arthur Edens, one of the firm's leading attorneys, under control. Arthur has had a manic episode in the middle of a deposition in Milwaukee. The deposition is part of a multi-billion dollar six-year class action lawsuit against U-North, an agricultural products conglomerate represented by Kennerbach and Leiden. The actual meltdown is familiar territory, especially for Matt, who I would say building once towards a month. one of these. Yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> has had this happen yeah. several times a year. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is sort of like the pre-show. <laughs> you taking your clothes off, Will telling me that you love me. Just start telling me how horrible I am. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know how much work and time I put into this show every day? When Matt shows up to record, there's just a piece of paper on the little table in front of him with a list of all of the things that was wrong with what he did last time. <laughs> Please fix this. Notes. Stop talking so yeah. much. You're ruining the vibe. <laughs> You've hired like a Michael Clayton for the show. Get Matt off of it. So basically what happens is they record all these depositions. This shit goes on for years. It's all fucking bullshit. We know that. It just protects these huge companies and corporations and conglomerates and all this corporate bullshit. But they poison people. It happens constantly. We know this. All kinds of chemicals, all kinds of different shit. They've made plenty of movies about it. They've written books about it. Nonfiction, fiction, fracking, fucking whatever. (laughs) Fucking... Dark waters. Pans, spray, fucking oil, whatever. Pollution. crazy. Global warming. All these companies, in their quest for profit, for everyone to be billionaires, will destroy and poison the world, Uh and they don't give a shit. Even the train derailment that happened recently, which is not that far away from where we're recording this, honestly. Look, people are buying this stuff at their own risk. (laughs) It's so fucked up. These things get dragged out forever. Usually there'll be some settlement, which is really just a speed bump to these companies. We know how it works. Anyway, in the midst of this giant fucking lawsuit that Kennerbach and Leiden is involved with, the top attorney, Arthur Edens, 
begins having this fucking meltdown, and it's all recorded, where he starts professing his love to one of the plaintiffs, a girl named Anna, who seems like a teenager. It's kind of even hard to say what he's doing. There is a weird vibe to it at times. I don't think that you're supposed to really get like a sexual vibe out of it, but it is strange that a, a, a much older man is taking his clothes off and telling him that he loves her. Yeah. But I think he's just crazy i don't think that it's really i know well the way he acts it it definitely it's like a character out of one flew over the cuckoo's nest there's like an innocence to his antics kind of yeah we're just not sure how to deal with what's happening yeah this all gets recorded he gets arrested for public exposure because he starts running through the parking lot nude Oof! it's a huge scene it's completely insane and embarrassing and it's a meltdown for this law firm because They've invested so much time in this lawsuit. You're talking about millions, if not billions, of billable hours or money for the hours. Right. All this different shit that they're going to... This is like their whole life. Because if this doesn't pay out the way that they need it to, it's going to jeopardize this merger that they're talking about with somebody in London. It's basically the future of this giant mega firm in New York City is dependent on this case. And their best lawyer starts having a freak out so then it becomes Michael's responsibility to get this under control. You walk into this situation, I don't know how you're coming back from this. They got a lot on tape here. Nothing on that tape would ruin it. No. It doesn't become a major problem until they realize why he's doing this and what he's planning on doing. Which is shocking that Everything that's a he's revelation. done to this point, they could just sort of Yeah, yeah. say, "You know what? He's mentally ill. He's off his medication." Right. It didn't mean anything. But a bad look, though, maybe. It keeps going, and he happens to be a genius, and he happens to be very well-versed in the law, and yes. he knows about <laughs> involuntary commitment, and so he goes back to New York, and then they can't commit him, and they don't know what to do with him. It's a whole thing. Right. Michael arrives in Milwaukee amidst a massive snowstorm and bails Arthur out of jail, learning he is no longer taking his medication. First film appearance from Catherine Waterston very yeah, quickly. A little bit of a shock for me. Just one of the lawyers involved. Yeah. One of the weirder scenes in the film is the scene where Arthur's on the phone with Michael's son. <laughs> and you have to kind of piece it together why this is happening. Yeah, yeah. Because at first I didn't get it. I was like, why? how is this happening? What's happening here? Then I realized that he bailed him out of jail and brought him to a hotel that Michael was staying at. So they're staying in the same room. Right. And that Michael's son obviously called the hotel or called the room number. To talk to his dad. And his dad wasn't there because yeah. he's out looking for Karen to try to put out this fire. And then Arthur's in the room. Now, one of the things that unfolds through conversation is the, there's more of a history. Michael's been involved with Arthur's situation in the past. Yeah. But one of the things that was unclear to me, and I guess maybe still unclear, is they definitely act like there's more of a relationship between the two of them. Yeah, I think that Arthur's supposed to be his mentor and hero. Okay. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. I don't know if it's like a one-to-one thing, but he's definitely somebody that he admires and mm-hmm. looks up to. And they do have a previous relationship. The conversation Arthur has with Michael's son, Henry, is in regard to this book, Realm and Conquest, which is a book that Henry wants Michael to read. He's brought it up a couple times. This is a little bit of like a deus ex machina type thing. It's a little convenient that they lay all this shit out there. But 
I think they do a reasonable job of putting the breadcrumbs out and so that you have explanation for each beat that happens. Because the realm and conquest thing is directly tied to why he gets out of the car to go look at the horses. Yes. Which is crucial because without that, life. <laughs> you're kind of like, well, why would he do that? Right. Like, what's he doing in that moment? And because without it, it is a weird time and place to be doing that. Yes. But then you have to have the reason, and then we'll get to that in a bit. Everything that his son says to him about realm and conquest also factors in to what's going on with him in his life. And in there's that, some direct quotes. We'll get a little yeah, bit more yeah. into that at the end. But I do think the realm and conquest thing is not just random. It, it all fits in oh, with definitely. what's happening. And then committed to a fully developed backstory, director Tony Gilroy spent a good deal of time establishing the details of realm and conquest with production designer Kevin Thompson, Gilroy explained that right from the beginning, he knew Roman Conquest was going to be a key prop. In the movie, it's a metaphor for truth and justice. To create the details of the fictional novel, Thompson generated original visuals inspired by German impressionistic images cut from wood bricks. And Tony Gilroy wrote the first two pages for three chapters of the book. They even designed a Roman Conquest card game for a scene between Henry and Michael. Thompson said this detail was important to Tony because in his own life, novels and games similar to Realm and Conquest allow him to connect with his son in a meaningful way. There is a moment of out of sight deja vu. I was thinking that. Because he approaches Karen at the hotel bar. Her name is Karen. I know. The snowstorm. The snow is going on outside. Arthur manages to escape from their hotel room in Milwaukee and returns to New York on his own. So what we have here is essentially a volatile asset out of containment. It's panic time. Mm -hmm. Because as long as he was technically in Michael's custody, it seemed like they had a handle on it. He couldn't really do any more damage under Michael's nose, theoretically. This is a world kind of before everyone has a smartphone. It's not like he can sit in his phone wrecking the whole fucking lawsuit. He'd have to actually go out and do it and as long as michael's got him that's not happening right he made a huge scene it's a mess it's fucked but they can contain it but yeah. then he goes back to new york and now what is he doing what the fuck is he doing now <laughs> yeah. they can't keep tabs on him because he's a, an adult male he's on his own he has money he's smart lives in a baller ass loft he got arrested but he got bailed out he's a free man what are you gonna do Meanwhile, Karen discovers that Arthur has a confidential U-North memo proving the company knew its weed killer was carcinogenic, which led to 468 deaths and counting. She brings this information to the attention of U-North CEO Don Jeffries, whose signature is on the memo. Oh boy, that's damning. You have a smoking gun. Yes. Don puts her in contact with two hitmen... She has them follow Arthur and bug his apartment. Are they immediately introduced as hitmen? No, but I guess you could draw some parallels between them and Michael. Yeah. They are a little bit more of the other side of the law in terms of fixers. Again, we know that fixers like Michael are also on that side of the law. You know what I mean. Right, I do. They're more of the underworld coming in and doing their thing, and it seems like they offer a variety of services. Yes. (laughs) All kinds of surveillance and whatnot, tracking. I I do enjoy their coded conversations with Karen. This is definitely the first time that 
Karen is truly shown to be out of her element. Oh, yeah. She takes this huge leap here without really knowing what she's doing. Yeah, yeah. Because if you go down this road, you're going to have to be prepared for a lot of different possibilities. And it seems like whenever the shit hits the fan, she just did not expect any of this stuff to happen and come no. back on her. And yeah, <laughs> not that you can really be sympathetic to someone who proves to be one of the bigger heels of the movie, sure. but she just definitely making some cold blooded choices. Yeah. She just doesn't seem like she really knew what she was doing at any point. Yeah. The thing that you read into her character is just this desperation to be able to fill this role and be this person yeah. without really having, I don't know, the right guidance or direction to do these things. She feels like she knows that she's doing what needs to be done, but is it what needs to be done? Yeah. I don't know. It's such a drastic decision, right. but at the same time, not that you can ever condone this, but you see where it's all headed at a certain point because the amount of money at stake is going to be so insane that you start to lose your humanity. And I think that's sort of the point of movies like this. Definitely. To show you how capitalism destroys your humanity. Absolutely. Because at a certain point, the money is so outrageous that you start putting together like, yeah, you have to kill this person. I know, (laughs) but that's why I think I like the Tilda Swinton performance and I think the Karen character is important because a lot of the other movies that play around in this world it's more like Sidney Pollock's that are involved in these things you're not seeing the armpit sweat right they're down and past the line they handle these situations like it's and then just writing a memo they, they've put themselves in position to be untouchable and have plausible, plausible deniability, deniability which yeah. even Don Jeffries I think probably does in this movie even yeah. though essentially she gets those names from him right I think that the company itself is not going to really take a hit for those murders. Yeah. And she's just going to be left right. catching that. <laughs> I think so. Now, there's obviously going to be some other fallout about the memo and everything. I think one of the underrated, interesting things about Michael Clayton is trying to figure out what happens after the movie ends. I know. To all the people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Even Michael, because you're like, well... He's obviously going to be fired, and he definitely signed a confidentiality agreement, which he immediately broke. So it's sort of like (laughs) he's destroying himself just to feel like a little bit better. And then I guess the movie puts you in the position of asking if that's worth it. And I guess you're supposed to think yes, that to do the right thing at all costs. And then they really stack it against him by making him already take the $80,000 and sign the confidentiality (laughs) agreement. In a November 2022 interview, Clooney stated that the case in the film, while about a completely different industry, was actually based on the Ford Pinto case, where it wasn't that Ford had a car that was unsafe, but that an internal memo showed that they had calculated the cost of recall versus the individual suits from people being killed in the car and determined it was cheaper to pay off claims and not do the recall. Man. Which is also borrowed in Fight Club, where Edward Norton talks about that same idea about the internal memos that go on at these places and weighing the different costs. I know. (laughs) It's so evil that you just have to laugh because it's almost like you're assigning the human life part of it as zero. And it's something that just continues to go on. Well, it's not even... I shouldn't say it's as if. it's That's literally what you're doing. You're saying the human life part is zero. 
that doesn't factor into this right. equation. The equation is the two costs and which one is more. <laughs> That's wild. The film then transitions into a little bit of a manhunt thing. We leave Milwaukee. We're back in New York. We essentially stay in New York. There's some cool shots of Times Square, Arthur running around in the streets, Michael and his son looking for him. There's a lot of ominous music going on. We're building towards a little bit of a countdown. You kind of get that sense like we're building to something. We know that Arthur is in probably way more danger than he's acting. We as viewers are able to see the bigger picture. Arthur, your life is probably in danger. Whatever plan you're thinking you're enacting, you better hurry up and do it. I don't know how to talk to you in a way that I'm going to get through to you. There is a bit of a manic episode going on that he never really comes out of. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's why it's interesting, because I think that in order for Gilroy to construct this story in a way that seems believable, you have to have Michael Clayton and a lot of the other assorted characters believe that that's what's happening, and that's what's happening only, Mm -hmm. is a mental breakdown at first. Yes. Because that way, not only are they underestimating the potential for danger, because if he's having a mental breakdown but he doesn't have this memo, then it's pretty simple. Right. Just get him back on his meds and act like this didn't happen and then just apologize profusely. The plaintiffs aren't going to really be able to do anything with this so far. Obviously, they could file a complaint that a lawyer acted inappropriate. He could potentially be taken off the case, but the case is not going to be impacted by him doing this yet. I think one of the challenging parts for me with this movie is when Sidney Pollack is giving a reality check to Michael Clayton later and just being like, yeah, what is it that you think we do here? This would sort of be my question to Arthur. Yeah, there is a little bit of naivete to some of this. I'm not saying it's right, and I understand like at a certain point, maybe you're overcome with guilt by being a part yeah, of it. Yeah, I think that's what the movie's asking you to, to do, is to say that they know that it's a bad business, and they know they do bad things, but they don't have it put it's in not, their face right. directly with a signed yes. memo saying, we know these people were killed. It's one thing to be responsible for death because of... The chemicals something poison that or may something. or may not be involved. But it's, yeah. The memo, I think, at this point, they say that the memo was from like 1991. Yeah. And the movie is taking place in present day 2007. And it's like so cold and dark to just be like, yes, we've known about this. For 15 years yeah. by that point would be 2007, right? Yep. No, what 16 years. 16 oh, 91. Years. Yeah. That's, I think, what they want you to do. It's a small window. It's yeah. a small hole to thread with the needle. Like you're... You want them to be aware that it's fucked up, but that also they have enough room for indignity right. at having it rubbed in their faces this way, to mm-hmm. be this blatant about it. And there's this added layer with the Arthur character because they talk about this guy has given his life to this case, essentially, at this point. Yeah, and I think over time, with Arthur off the medication, he's being presented with a very real human face uh-huh. with Anna, who, whose both of her parents were killed and her brother is dying of cancer. And he has an estranged relationship with his daughter. Yes. So, yeah, I do think that there is supposed to be more of a paternal thing, even mm-hmm. though it is weird that he's taking his clothes off. I definitely don't think there's supposed to be like a sexual vibe, even though it is weird. He's hey, saying is weird, that yeah. he loves her and right. stuff. And he's trying to like help her so much. Like The amount of help that he's actually giving her is so crazy that it's frightening to her and her whoever's left of her family, the people she's living with in the film. Because, like, why would anyone do this? It's that insane. Yeah. 
you're not just talking about billions of dollars. You're talking about risking your life. You're talking about throwing everything away, destroying this company, you North, destroying this law firm. It's it's such a huge thing that he's trying to do that there's no way that Anna or anyone else can process it as anything other than insane. Yes. <laughs> Why are you doing this? Please stop doing this. I would actually rather just finish the lawsuit the regular way. <laughs> you're freaking me out. <laughs> Like, we were probably going to win some money if right. we just stuck with this. <laughs> I'd rather just do that now. <laughs> Arthur calls Anna one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit, the one we've been referencing. So what we're seeing here with Arthur is what happens when one of the henchmen stops playing ball. Everyone goes along with these things. They get so big, they essentially are a conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. They're, everyone's gaslighting the world. Like, yeah, this chemical's completely safe. It's fine. What are you talking about? <laughs> but what happens if just one cog in the I wheel? Know. Ugh. Well, it's... that's the whole point of the movie is I like know. trying to inspire other cogs in the wheels of different places in the world. You don't have to be a part of this. You and can just stop. A company doing something wrong and then immediately trying to... How can we find ways to like defame these people coming forward? <laughs> Even though they're aware they're doing something wrong? Ugh. <laughs> I think it's Bach who points out to Michael, like, look, here's what Arthur was doing. He was actually building their case. He was building the case against you, North. He was actually doing everything the opposite. That's like where we were when he had his meltdown. Yeah. In fact, if he would have been able to keep himself under control and not take his fucking clothes off, he may have been able to get further along in his own plan. But he actually, in a way, it seems like... It, uh, derailed it? Yeah, his own mental illness derailed it, or he let himself down in some way. But if he could have just kept it under his hat a little bit longer, he may have been able to do irreparable damage that could never have been undone. Right. Not that it it is, because you know, they ultimately do kind of come out on top mm-hmm. in a way. True. Sort of a mixed bag. Sure, ending, really. sure it is. Yeah. You're not really sure what to think. Hold up. Stay in the car, lock the door. Arthur! Arthur! Oh! Wait up! Michael, she scared me. You making a delivery? No, no, no. Oh. Very funny. No, no, uh, nothing like that. No, right here. Take one, please. It's really, it's, it's, it's still warm. It's the best bread I ever tasted. So welcome home. Oh, I, I know the uh, the hotel. I'm sorry. I, I I was beginning to feel a little overwhelmed. But you're feeling better now. Oh yeah, yes, yes, much better. Definitely not enough to call me back. Well, I I, w- I was trying to um, gather my thoughts. Uh, that's before I called you, and that's what I was doing. And how's that going? Yes, it's good, very good. But I just uh, well, I, I just need to make my thoughts a little bit uh, more precise. That's. That's my goal. As good as this feels, you know where it goes. No, 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 you're wrong. I mean, what makes this feel good is that I don't know where it goes. How do I talk to you, Arthur? So you hear me. Like a child? Like a nut? Like everything's fine? What's the secret? Because I need you to hear me. Well, I, I, I hear everything. Then hear this. You need help. Before this goes too far, you need help. Now, you got great cards here. If you keep your clothes on, you can do pretty much any goddamn thing you want. You want out, you're out. You want to bake bread, go with God. 
There's only one wrong answer in this whole goddamn pile, and you've got your arms wrapped around it. Well, I, I said I was sorry. You thought the hotel was overwhelming? You keep pissing on this case, and they're going to cut you off at the knees. I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm out about. there covering for you. I'm telling them everything's fine. You're fine. Everything is going to be fine. Everybody's cool. I'm out there running this price of genius story to anybody who will listen. And then I wake up this morning, and I hear that you're calling this girl from Wisconsin, and you're messing with documents, and God knows whatever else. How can they're you gonna know that? They're going to take everything away from you. Your partnership, how, your equity. How can you know who they're I They're going to pull your license. How do you know Marty I told Anna. me. Are you denying it? What how does he know? I don't know. I don't give a shit. You're tapping my phone. Oh, Jesus. You want to explain it? Tell me how Marty because knows. You're walking through a parking lot. You're chasing a girl through a parking lot with your dick hanging out. You think she didn't get off the phone with you and speed dial her? At no, 30? she wouldn't do that. Oh, really? I know that. Really? You think that your judgment is state of the art right now? They're putting everything on the table. You need to stop and think this through. I will help you think this through. I'll find somebody to help you think this through. Don't do this. You're making it easy for them. Michael, I have great affection for you, and you lead a very rich and interesting life, but you're a bag man, not an attorney. If your intention was to have me committed, you should have kept me in Wisconsin, where the arrest report, the videotape, eyewitness accounts of my inappropriate behavior would have had jurisdictional relevance. I have no criminal record in the state of New York, and the single determining criterion for involuntary incarceration is danger. Is the defendant a danger to himself or others? You think you got the horses for that? Well, good luck and God bless, but I tell you this. The last place you want to see me is in court. I'm not the enemy. Then who are you? Michael finally tracks down Arthur on the streets of Manhattan and confronts him about the calls he made to Anna. But this is another big thing, which I think in a more cynical world and more cynical viewers, you're also kind of having to adjust yourself a little bit because in this moment, Arthur now knows his phones are being tapped, but they also act like this is such a big deal in the movie. True. Which it is illegal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, obviously, if you get proven, then yeah, they would be arrested and stuff. But they act like it's such a big deal breaker. And it's like, well, this seems like it would be a given that this was going to happen. I know. Tom Wilkinson is strong in this scene, though, too, because he does seem sort of like off his meds, spiraling, but there's an innocence and a harmlessness to it. But he definitely like gives it back. To Michael yeah, a little bit in this scene. Yeah, it, it is a great performance because he's simultaneously maintaining a certain level of defiance, uh-huh. but you also fully believe that he doesn't see the size of this thing or appreciate the scope of it either. Right. So it's both. Agree. He's able to convey the fuck you, I'm going to do this because I have to vibe, but also have that naivete still where you're kind of like, he doesn't realize how close he is to being yeah, killed. There's a piano hanging over your head, dude. Yeah. It's a really interesting mixture of both. Yep. Denzel Washington turned down the title role, saying later he was skeptical of working with a first-time director. Clooney also originally turned it down for the same reason, but then he later met with Gilroy, realized that they were both on the same page, two hours into the meeting and agreed to star 
Washington later said that he regretted his decision after seeing the movie. Both Gilroy and Clooney have a well-established and big appreciation for the 70s paranoia thrillers. Mm, Hell yeah. Films of the 70s in general. The Parallax View, for example, was cited as one of the influences on the film. Sweet. Clooney and Gilroy are both big fans of it, but you can also see Clute, Three Days of the Condor, all that stuff in here. It's a little bit different because those 70s movies feel much more of that government mistrust, and this feels like private business, like corporate world run amok, but the idea is still the same, where you're not sure who to trust, you're not sure what's going to happen, you're being watched, you're being bugged. giant entity of unclear the reach and who all is involved. Yeah, like a complete lack of morality, a complete lack of decency, just the cold. Yes, pursuit of wealth and progress you mentioned dark waters the 2019 todd haynes film definitely very similar that one's based on a real lawsuit also sort of the same midwest region yeah we live (laughs) there's always some fucked up shit going on over here mark ruffalo not quite a george clooney type character (laughs) well he's more based on the real guy yeah yeah That movie is really good. I, I think a lot of people slept on it because they thought probably what you were thinking about Michael Clayton, like, oh, this will be good, but I know what it is. It's straightforward. Yeah, but yeah. I think Todd Haynes brought like a lot of artistry to it. I would say that it's a pretty good double feature. That one's much more focused on the case. Correct. This more one, the case procedural. is more of like an afterthought. Yeah. But they do go well together. Another one, of course, also based on a real case, Aaron Brockovich. Oh, yeah from 2000, directed by Steven Soderbergh. Another huge class action lawsuit. People being fucked over by giant companies. You know, the whole thing. Definitely. I already covered this earlier. I don't think we really need to go over it again, but where does this movie exist in 2023? I think probably HBO Max or something. Sure. I don't know that you can get George Clooney for that, but maybe because the world has changed so much that doing a prestige TV miniseries seems pretty good to a lot of people. And Clooney did direct and star in that Netflix movie a couple years ago. So, yeah, you could probably get someone to that level. It is disappointing because I think there is a certain artistry to telling this story in two hours, which is something that will fade with time now that these movies don't really exist. Because now the answer will always be, well, can we make this script longer? Can well, this be a six-hour miniseries, please? This is the beauty to something like this. I complain about this all the time with movies now that it's a minimum of two hours and 40 minutes. Not that I have a problem with a long movie if you've earned it, but there's a beauty to the story being so much bigger than what we see. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, that's just good editing. And not just editing with stuff that's already been And filmed. writing, like you said. Yeah, I'm saying editing in the writing. Editing before you've even filmed it. Oh, yeah, yeah, Just trimming it, knowing what parts are essential. But it's a different art form. There's a version of Michael Clayton that is six hours in a miniseries that is just as good. Yeah, yeah. But you have to do it differently, obviously. It's a different skill, but I just think the skill of making the two-hour version is sort of out the window these days. does seem that way. Maybe it will come back. I kind of doubt it because you're looking at older people to see movies like Michael Clayton. Mm-hmm. And I think that window seems yeah. pretty closed. I know things are cyclical and 
trends and styles come back, but it does feel like certain things like the climate of movies have changed in a way that it's never going to be a way it was before. Well, yeah, because people have been given the choice to be able to stay home and watch whatever right. is on Netflix or whatever is on Hulu or HBO, and a lot of people chose that. They Definitely. don't necessarily need to see the newest movie. They don't really care. And half the movies on Netflix are new, essentially. Yeah, so, yeah. you know. In response to the constant surveillance, Arthur calls his own voicemail at the firm and says he will go public with the memo. Yes! Here we are, all together. Is everyone listening? Because this is the moment you've been waiting for, a very special piece of paper. So let's have a big, paranoid, malignant round of applause for United Northfield Cultivate Internal Research Memorandum number 229, June 19th, 1991. Conclusion. The unanticipated market growth for cultivate by small farms in colder climates demands immediate cost-benefit analysis. <laughs> Would you guys like a little bit of legal advice? Never let a scientist use the words unanticipated and immediate in the same sentence. Okay, okay. In-house field studies have indicated that small short-season farms dependent on well water for human consumption are at risk for toxic particulate concentrations at levels significant enough to cause serious human tissue damage. Well, this is a long way of saying that you don't even have to leave your house to be killed by our product. We'll pipe it into your kitchen sink. Cultivate's great market advantage that it is tasteless, colorless, and does not precipitate has the potential to mask and intensify these potentially lethal exposures. Now, I love this. Not only is this a great product, it is a superb cancer delivery system. Chemical modifications of the cultivated product, the addition of a detector molecule such as an odorant or colorant, would require a top-down redesign of the cultivated manufacturing process. These costs, while assumed to be significant, we're not summarized here. Which, loosely translated, means it's going to cost a fortune to go back on this, and I'm just an asshole in a lab, so could someone else please make the decision? Clearly, the release of these internal research documents would compromise the effective marketing of Cultivate and must be kept within the protective confines of United Northfield's trade secret language. Goodbye. Arthur's latest actions prove to be the final straw. Since he's being bugged, this information is going directly back to Karen, and Karen authorizes the hitmen to take drastic measures. Although I do enjoy her interaction with them when discussing this. Not really knowing how to, you know what I mean, have this conversation. Yeah. The two men break into Arthur's loft, kill him, and make it look like a suicide this scene really struck me. The way it's done, I think, is very specific, not just to show that, oh, these guys are professionals and know what they're doing, but it is so cold and yeah. clinical. Yeah, I oh. I basically made a note of the, the cold efficiency of Arthur's murder. These guys, there's no hesitation, no pause, extinguish a life. 
That's it. I don't even know what they're doing. Minutes. Yeah. Whatever it is that they're putting in his mouth, I don't know at what point that he's dead. Well, I think they're knocking him out, and then they inject him with something between his toes. Yeah. Because there's a pretty good chance that they won't find that or whatever. And I I don't know exactly what the cause of death is going to be because. Well, they call it a drug overdose, right? I can't remember. Okay. Well, I think well, so. I, I don't know. I just thought it, it was weird so, because they put his sock back on like they were trying to conceal where the Oh, I definitely was Yeah, I, I was assuming that it's a drug that he's made to look like he's overdosed on. But to your point, they're not finding this injection. Yeah, I don't really know because we don't see the body yeah. and they kind of move away from like the specifics at a certain point. It's just he's dead. Right. And... Not to jump all over the place, and I know that there's certain elements of this episode that might end up being confusing, especially for people who haven't seen the film, but to go to your point about the naivete, especially of Arthur and also Michael later, that scene with Michael and Bach later, Mm -hmm. after Arthur's death, when he's first learning that they kind of knew about this memo and they knew that how fucked this case was, and that's when he seems surprised. I think you also have to factor in that that revelation is sort of pushing him in the direction that Arthur was murdered. Because you have to remember that Michael kind of buys that it's a suicide, at least for like a few hours. Yeah, because like 12 I think hours or so. He's wrapped up in the idea that Arthur is kind of off his rocker a bit and in this weird state and making rash decisions. Yeah, and it looked like a suicide. I think right. they reference everything was locked up from the inside. It was yeah, really yeah. a professional job. So he's like, oh, fuck, I don't know what happened. But then I think once the pieces start falling into place, he maybe isn't at that exact moment where he's blaming his coworkers for being in on the death. I don't know that he would think that right then, but he's now on that path where he's like, well, wait a minute. Right. Everyone's seemingly in the know about how fucked up this case was all this death tied to this chemical everyone just was fine with it and then we were all going to be on part of this cover-up and then all of a sudden arthur finds out now arthur's dead and now wait a minute now you north wants to settle and all this different shit starts happening and he's like wait a minute wait a minute wait because it seems like too much is happening at once and i do think that him thinking about arthur is part of that naivete it's not just oh i didn't know that we were representing bad people it's like how deep is this would you be involved with killing arthur that's the thoughts that i think are starting to like wait a minute how fucked up is this now yeah maybe this world is a bit darker than i was expecting and i've been a fringe player michael clayton is a little bit of a midlife crisis take stock of your life type movie what path do i want to be on it's oddly timed because it's right before the big recession yeah. coming around the corner. But we're right at that peak. We're at, right at a breaking point. We're stuck in an American capitalistic nightmare. It was poignant and powerful in 2007. Here we are, several presidents, and all these years later, it's still poignant and powerful. I think that the story, unfortunately, is very much evergreen. A reminder of how meaningless most things are in the world. We're caught in a rat maze in the pursuit of happiness where the pursuit itself is so nasty it makes the happiness an impossibility to begin with. 
which is where Michael Clayton is. Mm-hmm. He's realizing I'm doing all of this to serve a master, which is money, which is a career, which is a life. But wait a minute. What is the actual cost? And it seems like it's much more than he would have initially thought. And I guess it is sort of what separates the people like Sidney Pollock's character from the people like him. Like, how do you take that next step? How do you become one of those guys? And you have to be a complete sociopath. I know. It really is. Because a, he's a acting bummer. like he's grieving yeah. Arthur as if he's not fucking happy that it happened. I know. I don't know if he knows Arthur was murdered or not. I, I assume he Sus- probably thinks that think he was. I would say he suspects it's on but the table. He doesn't give a shit because yeah. now Arthur doesn't seem like he's a problem. It anymore. made a big problem go away. However, the situation does not resolve itself quietly after Arthur's death, especially not for Michael, who seems to be the only one cursed with being in a position to see all sides. In the wake of Arthur's demise, the shitstorm he was in the process of kicking up actually seems more complicated now. Michael first becomes suspicious when he discovers that U North was planning a settlement just a few days before, which is news to him, but then... Trying to retrace Arthur's steps and figure out what exactly he was up to, Michael learns that Arthur had booked a flight to New York for Anna, as in, yes, she's literally there in the city at that very moment, not knowing what the fuck is going on because (laughs) Arthur is dead. Sitting in an airport hotel by LaGuardia. What a boring night this was about to be. Good thing Michael showed up. All while Michael is continually being tracked by the hitmen who dispatched of Arthur, Michael goes to Anna's hotel room where she swears she never told anyone of her conversations with Arthur. So this is playing in with the whole, oh, big surprise, they were listening to his conversations. Unless I'm missing something, which I fully admit is possible because Mm -hmm. I'm not claiming to be a genius and this movie is dealing in things that are sometimes a little heady. But it seems like they're acting as if Michael is surprised that he was being bugged by you North. And I'm like, why would you be that naive? It seems like something they would definitely do. Right. I do think some of the reveals. But then again, uh, let's be fair. Please. We're bringing into it our knowledge of movies. (laughs) True. Which is not exactly the same thing as the real world. Is it crazy for a company involved in a billion dollar lawsuit to bug their own lawyer i don't know i yeah it is obviously crazy but is it unfathomable is it something that would shock a guy like michael clayton i don't know it seems like in a movie like this it would be the logical if michael clayton was watching this movie he'd be like why are you shocked (laughs) i don't know it's hard to gauge what is everyday life for these people and what is out of the i know like that's the thing we act like it's so crazy that he's shocked but would it be more crazy in a real situation to actually think that that's happening? Yeah. Is there any scenario where I was like, dude, they fucking bugged your phone? Yeah. Where you'd be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You'd be like, who? <laughs> of course. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> How would they even do that? Yeah. <laughs> it is weird. How much of the stuff that happens in movies is going on in the real world all the time? I don't know where that line, when one starts and ends. Well, I do think that you're bringing with you your knowledge of those 70s paranoia thrillers of different types of these Oh, yeah. So everyone's phone movies. is bugged all the yeah, time. Then. And <laughs> in those scenarios, they never fixate on like, oh, I'm shocked my phone is bugged. Yeah. So we become conditioned to think like, yeah, of course they would do that. Right. 
But this I mean, is listen. treated like a reveal because he's like really hammering oh, in yeah. on this. Like you never told anyone. I know. And it, then when, it almost made me feel like I was missing what's supposed to be like a shock. Yeah, what that's what I mean. Like I here? could be wrong, but it seems yeah. like that's what they're implying. Is Agreed. like it's so surprising that that's how they found out that he was talking to Anna, and that for some reason he thought it was more plausible that Anna had told somebody and that that had somehow gotten back to you north. That seemed more believable to him. I don't know. Hmm. That doesn't seem more believable to me. But I don't know. Well, because it opens... who would she tell that would somehow get it back to them? I don't know. But this does open a door for him. One that he needs to go down. Yet, we, as viewers, do already know yes. that Kenner, Bach, and Leiden, the law firm, were already well aware of Arthur's conversations with the U-North plaintiffs. So, in a sense, when Anna confirms that she never told anyone, this is, I guess, your connection to how deep his own company is in this. and that. Oh, yeah plays into what I was saying before with the pieces falling into place. So if they've told his own law firm, hey, we're listening to this fucking maniac and he's talking to the plaintiff, you've got to get a hold of this, you could make that connection then that they would be aware that Arthur's life is in imminent danger. Yes. They never really say that and Clayton never confronts anyone, but you can kind of put those pieces together. I think so. With the help of his brother Gene, a police officer, a different brother, not the restaurant one, Michael breaks into Arthur's sealed apartment. Inside, he finds champagne and two glasses in the refrigerator, a copy of Realm and Conquest, the fantasy novel beloved by Michael's son, with several pages highlighted and annotated by Arthur, plus a receipt from a photocopy shop. When he's in Eden's loft... Looking through the copy of Realm and Conquest, the artwork of the horse on the hill was added through CGI as it was recommended to be a reason for Clayton to pull over and walk up the hill in the very early shot with the horses. According to the commentary track, the editor was pushing for three horses in the photo as just one wouldn't be enough for viewers to get the reference. This was something I was seeing online recurring as a thing that people missed. And wow. it really wouldn't have occurred to me the first time watching it that that's why he got out of a car. Okay. But I guess I wasn't really paying that close attention to what was on the page of this book. I did make the connection. I'm like, oh, okay. I get it now. Well, yeah, I got yeah. it this time. Okay. Going slowly and <laughs> doing the notes. But yeah, the first time I watched it, it didn't really even occur to me. Mm. I guess I didn't really need a reason. Yeah, that's true. His life was fucked up. I'm going to stay go talk to those horses. <laughs> see, see how they're feeling about life right now. <laughs> go talk to those horses. What's up, horses? Yeah. I'd be afraid if I tried to just get out and go like approach horses that I'd just get like kicked in the face and be dead immediately, like Don Draper's dad. <laughs> well, they do have those bridles on, so they're not like wild horses. That's true. But even if you take away the visual cue as to why... I think that it is a very jarring moment because most of the movie takes place in the urban jungle. It's yes, New York true. City. It's disconnected. And it doesn't take a fucking genius to put together like horses, wild horses, horses on a hillside. Horses are free. They stand in for freedom, the freedom he doesn't have anymore. Mm-hmm. He's been trapped in this life that he doesn't want. His life is just sort of turned into a disaster. But not only does it suck and does he owe this money, yeah. the restaurant failed, but... 
oh, well, now I'm kind of complicit in a coworker's murder because I've got involved in this stupid bullshit and I didn't realize how dark this whole thing was. Well, and we didn't talk about it, but there's sort of like a key detail about his past that I think gives you a little insight about the life or the path that he was on when Karen talks about his position at the firm and they look at his history and it kind of started off as like a low level, like criminal prosecutor. Yeah. And obviously his path has led him far from that. Well, Bach references that too. Yeah. yeah. He's like, I don't want to hear the fucking glory days. <laughs> it probably wasn't as good as you say it was yeah, anyway yeah. or whatever, <laughs> which is always true. The hitman still trailing Michael call 911 as he enters the apartment He is caught and arrested for trespassing, but Brother Gene bails him out. Using the receipt, Michael discovers that Arthur ordered 3,000 copies of the confidential U-North memo. The hitmen also obtain a copy, which they run and give to Karen. So now Michael has made himself a problem for them. Mm -hmm. His detective work is making him look like a problem before he's even realized all of the reasons he is actually problematic. Yes. In other words, him doing this has made him look suspicious before he's even realized what he's looking for or what could be suspicious. He still hasn't fully grasped what has happened. It's not until he actually sees the memo that he starts piecing this all together. Because very deep into the film, he's still kind of teetering on the edge of, well, was Arthur just having... A breakdown or was there something going on here what what was he doing exactly and then he sees this memo and then he puts the human face to it with anna now anna's here and then he's like what the fuck wait a minute did he not commit suicide <laughs> it's like he's just <laughs> grasping it everyone else has moved on yeah, they're yeah. like not even they're like joking about it in the right. office they're like oh we gotta kill arthur again and he's just <laughs> like wait a minute what <laughs> Even the secretaries are, like, laughing about it. It's a a weird quality for the fixer-type character because it always seems like those guys in the movies have a perspective that everybody else doesn't have. Yeah, but you're also bringing in your prejudiced movie knowledge as to who he would be, and you're kind of making a judgment, but you're not also realizing that a firm like this probably has a few guys that do this, and maybe he's at the level where he handles stuff that is a little bit more within the law now it might be like bending the law it might Mm -hmm. be like adjusting the law whatever you have to do but he's not going to the murder level yeah yeah but it is possible that there are people at the firm who would be on that level they do have a wolf on staff it just depends we don't know he's just a guy who is able to show up and very quickly and efficiently handle things but the level to which he's willing to go doesn't seem to be let's hire hitmen right. or anything like that. It's let's assess the situation quickly. What are our options? What can we do? Let's stay calm. Let's figure this out. Yes. That kind of a thing. The prevailing wisdom eventually turns to, well, Michael must be blackmailing the firm with knowledge he's gained via Arthur. Why else is he suddenly asking for 80K? So, believing Michael is blackmailing them, Marty offers a renewed contract plus the 80 thou Michael asked for on the condition that he sign a non-disclosure agreement. It's made abundantly clear that Marty and other higher-ups were already well aware of U-North's cover-up and were from the very beginning. Michael takes the money, pays off Timmy's restaurant debt, and then goes to play poker, and we've circled... (laughs) Back to the start. So now we know why he asked for the extra 5K. Right. 
He had to pay seventy five to the guy who was from the wire. Yep. The Greek guy. And then he took that other five K and he's like, Well, I'm gonna hop back on this train. I know. <laughs> he's basically breaking even with life now and immediately lining himself up for another bad decision. But look, it looks like he's got some willpower at this point. I mean, he only plays a couple hands, sneaks in a couple hands before he has to go make a work trip. <laughs> I miss my kids' party. Yeah. <laughs> So now we're seeing this all again for the second time, but what we didn't see the first time around was these hitmen, the two guys who killed Arthur, rigging Michael's car with a bomb while he's inside playing poker. The hitmen pursue as Michael heads upstate to handle the hit and run from the beginning, trying to find the right moment to detonate the bomb. They were rushed, and so they aren't sure if it was put in right. I don't know. They try to come up with a bunch of excuses as to why they don't just push the fucking thing. And it just ends with him in it. Yeah. <laughs> they have to come up with all these things. Like, well, they didn't, weren't sure if it got in there right because they got rushed. And then it doesn't seem to be working. And then they don't know where he is. I think they're looking for a secluded area. They want to guarantee that he's by himself. Mm-hmm. They want this to be as quiet and as contained as possible. As we already saw, Michael drives past some horses in a field reminiscent of the picture in Realm and Conquest. And so he stops the car getting out to approach them. While he's in the field, the bomb detonates. And it's sort of like the explosion in Roadhouse, where it's multiple yeah. <laughs> bombs going you off. You see that yeah. in a lot of things. Right. The second explosion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Roadhouse. <laughs> I, I think virtually all explosions on TV and in film is like that. Don't they always do the second? Yeah, probably. One? Buying himself a little time, he tosses his wallet and watch in the fire and escapes into the woods. I did think it was a little unbelievable that word of his death would travel so fast when it was clear that he actually wasn't dead. I think that if that news is going to travel, you're going to be confirmed that there's a body in there. It's not going to be, we assume that he was in there, and let's tell the fucking goddamn world. The way this explosion is, there would be remains here. This is not something that is completely eviscerated. That's true, and... Even if it does burn for a while, because it is kind of a secluded area. Well, that's that part's true. Somebody would be taking a while to find this, I think. But his skeleton and stuff, would yeah, definitely, yeah. it's not like it's that right. hot. I mean, it seems like he's out there, doesn't it? I guess he's in the part of the country where it's residential becoming country. Like, it seems like you're pretty far well, out. He probably but... just found a gas station somewhere. Yeah, had to make know. a call. At a U-North board meeting, Karen proposes that the board approve a new settlement in the lawsuit. In the foyer, she's confronted by Michael, whom she believed was dead. So before we play this clip, the the ending confrontation, I did want to highlight, even in this moment where they're prepared to finally give the plaintiffs money, it's all based on an assessment of how much it's going to cost, how much they can write off for taxes. Absolutely meeting the right amount, putting a price tag on the 468 lives that they've taken. It's so grotesque, but then this is offered to these fucking decrepit white men, just ghouls sitting there in their (laughs) shitty fucking suit jackets. I know. Slobbering at the idea of how much money that they're going to lose or how much money they're going to have. Not giving one shit that this is poison that they've put out in the world. It's so gross. I know. How'd it go in there? Pretty freaky, huh? 
You see Arthur? He's wandering around here somewhere. I'm kidding. Lighten up. You got one of these? It's a great memo. It's an oldie but a goodie. I got your heart racing, don't I? I don't know what the hell it is you think you're doing. What do you think I'm doing? The suit's over. We have a deal. Whatever that is, it's uh, meaningless at this point. You think? I must have gotten it wrong. I thought you had a tentative proposal. I didn't realize you'd signed all those checks. It's a drag. I got a thousand of these things. What the hell am I going to do with them? I'm calling Marty. Good. Good. Do it. That's a great place to start. Let's find out who told him that Arthur was calling Anna Kaiserson. Let's find out who tapped those phones. This, this memorandum, even if it's authentic, which I doubt, I highly... I know what you did to Arthur. It's protected. It belongs to you, North. I know you killed him. It's a cut-and-dry case of attorney-client See, privilege. now, that's just not the way to go here, Karen. For such a smart person, you really are lost, aren't you? This conversation is over. I'm not the guy that you kill. I'm the guy that you buy. Are you so fucking blind you don't even see what I am? I'm the easiest part of your whole goddamn problem and you're gonna kill me? Don't you know who I am? I'm a fixer. I'm a bag man. I do everything from shoplifting housewives to bent congressmen and you're gonna kill me? What do you need, Karen? Lay it on me. You want a carry permit? You want a heads up on an insider trading subpoena? I sold out Arthur for 80 grand and a three-year contract and you're gonna kill me? you want? What do I want? I want more. I want out. And with this, I want everything. Is there a number? Ten is a number. Ten? Ten what? Ten million? Where do you think, where do you think I'm gonna get ten million dollars? You know what's great about this? Did you read it all the way to the end? You see who signed it? Let's go into that ballroom and ask Don Jeffries if he wants to pass the hat for a worthy cause. This would have to be a longer conversation mm -hmm. and, it, and would have to take place somewhere else. Where? My car? All right. I'm gonna make it easy. Let's make it five. Five and I'll forget about Arthur. Five is easier. Yeah, five is something we, we could talk about. Good. And then the other five is to forget about the 468 people that you knocked off with your weed killer. Let me finish up this meeting. I'll talk to Do Don. Do I look like I'm negotiating? Karen? One second. Everything okay? Yes. $10 million, bank of my choosing, offshore immediately. Yes. Say it. $10 million, your account, the moment this meeting is Karen, started. everyone's waiting. I'm coming, Don. You have a deal. You're so fucked. What? You're fucked. What do you mean? Take a wild guess. Is there a problem? I don't understand. Here, let me get a picture while I'm at it. You don't want the money? No, you keep the money. You're going to need it. Is this fellow bothering you? I don't know. Am I bothering you? Karen, I've got a whole board waiting in there. What the, what the, what the hell's going on? Who are you? I'm Shiva, the god of death. Ron, Ronnie, I need security out here immediately. All right, here we go. That guy right there, stop him. Grab that guy. What are you doing? We're detectives with the NYPD. All right, come, come to the back with us and we'll explain everything. Check on her, make sure she doesn't need medical attention. Is there anything better than the 
you thought I was dead, but surprise, I'm not. <laughs> is that the best thing in the world? I mean, this whole sequence. I'm saying in general. Yeah. Across all things. Is there anything better than that? You do kind of wish that yourself and everyone would get one of these moments in their life. I've fantasized <laughs> yeah. about these moments. I think you could come up with some great moments. Absolutely. Although I think it wouldn't be shock. I think just pure disappointment when people realize that I no. wasn't dead. <laughs> no, you're still alive. Mm. <laughs> Turning away. <Yeah>. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Does it exist, though, outside of cinema, outside of TV? I don't think so. Has it ever happened in the real world? I guess it probably has, but very rare. Yeah. Much more rare. Back in the Unsolved Mysteries days. Well, yeah, I think in a pre-internet age, you could fake your death. But even the unintentional. I'm sure it's happened where people think someone's dead from the war or something. I'm sure that's happened. For sure. (laughs) You thought I was dead, but here I am that moment. But I don't think we live in a world where it can happen now. It would be pretty I think hard. it could, but yeah. it it's it gets rarer and rarer. Yes. The circumstances would have to be perfect. <laughs> Karen is completely flustered and obviously in way over her head. Michael goads her into offering him 10 million for his silence. She eventually agrees. However, Michael reveals that he's wearing a wire. Brother Gene and other members of the NYPD move in. As Karen and Don Jeffries are arrested, Michael gets into a cab and rides away. The credits start playing as he's in the cab, just not saying anything. And he just keeps going and going. And you can read a lot into the facial expressions if you want to. Don't know that that's necessarily required. But it can help sort of frame how you want to think of what's going to happen next. Because, yeah, he did take the ADK and he did sign the confidentiality agreement. So at the very least, he's out of a job. This lawsuit is probably not going to be impacted, honestly. Right. Because Karen's going to take the fall for the murder, which is honestly the biggest thing. And, yeah, that exists. I don't know. It's possible that they push the lawsuit back and then try to get more money out of it, but... You North is probably going to sue the law firm because they fucked them. Yeah. So there's all kinds of shit. This is it gets so tangled and messy and weird. The law firm is not going to merge probably with whatever they were going to merge with in London. Everybody's probably fucked one way or another. It's off the rails. But it seems like he takes a little bit of joy in the fact that he was able to balance some of the bad with a little bit of good. I think so. To at least take down one person who was willy-nilly ready to murder over this. Well, he definitely seemed energized walking out of this place. He had a little strut in his step. As a little treat, I decided to pull some stuff off of Reddit. Oh, good. Some of these comments are years old, but I thought that some people pointed out some interesting stuff. So push it a little bit further. A user named Gian, G-U. I-L-E-N, nine years ago. Hmm. I'd like to posit that it's basically his moment of catharsis, not a big picture victory, but in that essential intimate moment of personal achievement, he is no longer helping the scum. He has made an important motion that has overthrown a duplicitous, immoral individual he knows he could no longer pretend to not see. 
and he is basking in the moment of knowing he has done something to contribute to the end of that pretense. That's really the heart of the film, not the overarching victory that is or is not present, but the moment of deliberation inside the heart of an individual to stop pretending and do what is right and to find the breath thereafter. Both Clooney's character and Wilkinson's character are variations on this, and in one sense, that ending moment is Clooney's character finally living up to the vague spirit that Wilkinson's character instilled in him. It's a reinforcement of the notion that little victories contribute to a greater whole, something that is of profound import in a time of virtual hopelessness. So that's basically what I was pushing towards a little bit. There is no greater victory in this movie. It's a little victory, and it is the triumph of one man's spirit. Because the sad truth is the plaintiffs are still fucked. They're going to get a shitload of money. This is just a... But their lives are ruined. Many of them have cancer or their loved ones died of cancer. That's going to stay the same no matter what. Nothing that happened in this movie is really changing that. not saving lives. He's probably not causing that big of a problem for... I mean, the company will probably live on and get past this. You North would probably live on. They're probably one of those companies that's too big to fail where there would be some sort of way to save it or something, potentially. But, yeah, the law firm is probably fucked. (laughs) Because it's going to be hard to do business after a meltdown of this proportion and ruining a, a lawsuit of this size. Oh, sure. For the, yeah. And then getting sued over it and the whole thing that's probably going to happen. But the movie does enough. It, it plants some breadcrumbs to the horse's moment. You have Michael, Arthur, and then Michael's son, Henry, all entangled over this book. Michael makes a lot of promises that he wants to read this book. It's not till he sees the book in Arthur's apartment that he's reminded of this, his own failures as a father and as a man. That's why he sees the picture in the book and the picture spurs something on inside of him to get out of the car. A user named Kibble, K-I-B-B-L-E, says, Henry is dying for Michael to read Realm and Conquest, even leaving a copy of it at Michael's house a week prior. He tells him, all about the gathering of different characters in a forest and how it's about treachery and betrayal. Henry says, quote, and nobody has any alliances. It's just completely like everybody for themselves. Michael says, sounds familiar. Later, we see Arthur, the lawyer who is having a breakdown on the phone with Henry, eager to hear more about Realm and Conquest. Henry is describing a chapter called Summons to Conquest, which is about vision quests, shared dreams, and characters compelled to go somewhere they don't understand. Henry says... They think they're going crazy and don't want to admit it. Arthur says, but they're not crazy, are they? Henry replies, no, it's real. It's really happening. Arthur says, yeah, it is happening, isn't it? Something larger than themselves, and they're not ready to hear it. Arthur takes the story as a sign that his own compulsions are the right path. When he breaks into Arthur's apartment, Michael finds a copy of Realm and Conquest with lots of notes and highlights and pauses on an illustration of horses on a hilltop with trees. Arthur's taking Realm and Conquest seriously makes Michael realize that he has, quote, betrayed Henry by not fulfilling his promise to read the book. We also see the highlighted and annotated chapter summons the Conquest just before the police interrupt. What it boils down to, it's a sentence I said earlier, a question, how much can we stomach? That's really what the movie is. Corporate corruption, endless greed, blind hate and prejudice. It's all horrifying. Totally. the way that we go through the world in many ways 
Michael has fucked himself, but at least he's clean at the end, and he can feel a little bit better. Yeah, and really, this life, what fulfillment did it bring him? We're basically meeting him at a point where he's in the red. (laughs) He's trying to overcome a $75,000 debt. Which he manages to do, but at the cost of literally everything else. But at least he can walk away clean, and then he kind of becomes like the horses. So where do you go from here? You just go work at like a coffee shop? Well, it would probably feel better. I know. I think anything would be a step up. Yeah. You just have to get out of it and shake all of that off. But the truth of it is that you're probably going to be tied up in all kinds of bullshit. Oh, yeah. He's going to be involved in Karen's trial. Right. (laughs) Don Jeffrey's trial. The lawsuit of you North against his law firm. His own law firm might sue him. Who knows? All kinds of shit's going to (laughs) happen. Thank you to Aaron for the listener request. This was a fun one. A little bit different vibe than some of the movies we've been doing recently so yeah kind of a cool change of pace i'm officially a uh, michael clayton guy now so yeah check it out on hbo max if you haven't already seen it i think it's a movie that holds up insanely well definitely there's a few moments where you're like oh these cell phones are out of date or whatever but you're mostly looking at it and thinking this could be today sure there's really nothing too dated about it It fits in right with the world we're living in now. Absolutely. Unfortunately. Anyway, so check that out. If you have a listener request of your own and would like us to cover that topic on a future episode, reach out greatestpod at gmail.com, at greatestpod on Twitter, $50 for a movie up to two hours and ten minutes, $75 for a movie up to three hours, anything longer than three hours, we'll see. That's all I can say. We'll negotiate with you. Yep. We have a tip jar on Twitter. That's how you pay through Cash App. It's very simple to create a Cash App. I know not everyone has one. I think some people have created one just to pay us, which is cool. You can do that and then delete it right away if you're worried about fraud or, I don't know, whatever goes on with Cash App. You can probably just get rid of it. But if you don't want to do that, you can reach out. We'll maybe work something out through PayPal or whatever. So thanks to Aaron. Let's move right along because we have a couple of segments to get to. Let's do recommendation. All right. Where we're just going to talk about a couple of movies we just saw in the theater, although I guess I saw two. You saw one. That's right. As is usually the case, you're one-upping me. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. Well, I went Saturday and Sunday to the local cinemas. Seems like months might go by where I can't be bothered, and then all of a sudden there's several releases all at once that yeah. I want to see. It's good. It always feels good to be getting use out of our memberships down there. <laughs> yeah. I think this is the comeback. I'm going to start going again. <laughs> Indiana Jones, right around the corner. Okay. Anywho, I saw Evil Dead Rise, the mm-hmm. new entry in the Evil Dead franchise. And I did realize something in the aftermath in the parking lot wow. discussing it, where I basically said, this is the life of a horror fan now, mm-hmm. and you just have to embrace it. Are there movies that are not part of franchises? Yes. But a big part of being a horror fan is seeing Scream 6 and thinking, well, that was good enough. I would definitely see a Scream 7. <laughs> 
seeing Evil Dead rise, saying, well, that was good enough. I would probably see another yeah, Evil yeah. Dead. And then it just keeps going forever. Right. They got you. You have to embrace it and get over the fact that you're living in a world of sequels, remakes, requels, reboots, reimaginings, That's whatever. Right. Yep. This is unrelated, basically, to any other Evil Dead movie other than there's a Book of the Dead and it does the same shit it always does. I don't know. I guess the book is the same, how there's all these books, whatever. Unclear. This one takes place in a high-rise building in oh. California, so it's a little different from the typical so. aesthetic of yeah. the cabin in the woods. I ultimately did like the film. I hmm. know that not everyone has loved it. It's kind of gotten mixed reviews, I guess. I will say the first 15 to 20 minutes is kind of boring, I was getting a little nervous, thinking like, I don't know about this. But at the end of the day, it just felt fun to be in a crowded movie theater for a movie this grim, bloody, gross. Yeah. In a way that's also funny because it's so absurd sometimes, the shit that they're doing. Would I have preferred all of the shit in this movie to be done practically rather than the endless CGI? Yes, but... I'm not going to be unreasonable. I know that that's not going to happen, so yeah. I'm not going to cry about it anymore. I, I was telling you, it. it's weird to me that the thing that's become sort of the legacy of Evil Dead and what seems like people want to make in these newer versions is the thing that they hone in on is the violence. Yeah. Well, what, the, the originals are also insanely violent and bloody, but they right. feel different because it's so DIY. There's a campiness to it. Yeah, because it's so yeah, yeah. handmade. Right. The whole thing feels very handmade. And so it's a different... And then oh, you that's... get into the comedic stuff in Evil yeah, Dead yeah. 2 and then Army of Darkness. But even like the first one, which is not that, which myself and you both prefer, so atmospheric. Yeah, I will say that the new ones don't really have that same atmosphere, but yeah. that's also partially because it's shot digitally right. in a CGI world and that yeah, whole yeah. thing. I did ultimately enjoy the film it gets very gross and funny and bloody and it doesn't pull any punches and it's not like scream six where at the end of the movie you're like how did all these people survive it's kind of the opposite (laughs) (laughs) you know it's not like saving people for anything really it gets pretty grim and yeah it's 90 minutes of just gross shit I probably would have it below the 2013 remake, but they're pretty comparable. Okay. I didn't mind the venue change that much. They keep it sort of like a a one location for the most part. Most of it happens in an apartment. Gotcha. A little bit in the hallway, a little bit in the elevator. There's definitely like a shining Ooh. homage with an elevator full of blood. and There's some stuff in the parking garage and whatnot, but it's mostly just in the apartment. And... I don't know. I thought it was cool. I'm willing to see more. I don't know how the diehards of the Evil Dead franchise feel about it. I think when we covered the Evil Dead on the show, what was that, two years ago? No, last year. Mm-hmm. Well, it would be about a year and a half ago now. I think I made it clear that although I do like the first one and the remake, I don't really think that the Evil Dead is my franchise because I never really dug that comedic vibe that everyone seems to like about Evil Dead 2 and I think Evil Dead 2 is fun and I like it I think Army of Darkness is bad I don't think it's good at all so that's where I'm at mentally if you're more into the Evil Dead 2 Army of Darkness side of things I don't know if Evil Dead Rise is really 
going to be for you. I would mm. say, how do you feel about the 2013 remake? Because that's the same. More comparable. World. Yeah. Okay. Fair so, enough. So I would say check it out if you're into Evil Dead and in, into horror. But if you don't like that kind of stuff, you're, you're not going to like it because it's pretty gross. All right. So then the next night, I went back to the theater. This oh, time, yeah. Matt was allowed to be included. For a nice quick outing. The new picture from Ari Aster, Bo is Afraid, starring Joaquin Phoenix. This is probably going to be one of the most polarizing movies ever. You see a lot of half-star and one-star reviews next to five-star, four-and-a-half-star reviews. Yeah. I think the Rotten Tomatoes score, both the critics and the fans or viewers or whatever, users... Also kind of reflects that. I'm sure Cinema Score will be like an F sure. or a D plus because <laughs> it's one of those kind of movies. I'm telling you right now, this will be in my top ten of the year. Yeah, I don't know. I think I'm a little more mixed than you. Although I knew exactly what to expect. Yeah. You had no idea what the fuck this even was, really. I thought that he was still operating in the same genre. <laughs> I knew that this wasn't going to be a horror movie, although I still expected there to be horrific elements, and there yeah. are. Oh, for sure. But nothing in yeah, this yeah. movie is scary. Well, let me you say this. You should say that right off the bat. Absolutely. Hereditary shook me to my core. It's probably one of the last movies in my adult life that actually freaked me out and stuck with me for days. Not a hint of that in this. I mean, nothing like that. Horrific in the way that it's, this is sort of what it feels like to be in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Bo is... A man who has a lot of anxiety and everything is a challenge and the movie is a three-hour journey of him trying to get back home to his mother. It's very surreal. Mm -hmm. There's shades of Charlie Kaufman up a storm. Yeah. It's Charlie Kaufmaning up a storm all over the place for sure. I was reminded of I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Yeah, yeah. I was reminded of... How do we say that? Synecdoche? Yeah. Synecdoche? I don't think we ever landed on it. New York? Right. For sure. But there's also visual cues from childhood movies. I think we're deliberate. First, I was kind of joking about the nothing from NeverEnding Story, but then there was a visual cue that reminded me of The Land Before Time. Yeah. With that leaf. Right. The way that a leaf was falling. And I was like, I think these are 80s childhood cues. It's like a little could homage be. to yeah. stuff that probably because Ari Aster is probably our age range. I'm yeah, sure I think he so. Saw all the same shit, right? And I kind of felt like that was intentional at a certain point. Could be without question. There's plenty to unpack here that <laughs> I'm sure is not quite on our radar yet. Yeah, it is a very complicated, complex movie. Oh, it's yeah. a huge swing, thought provoking for sure, strange as hell. But I thought entertaining throughout. I'm going to say a decent amount of laughs. Yeah. I would say that the last third is a letdown. I think so, too. And, and I especially am the last scene, which I, yeah, sucks. You said it. I, I did not like the end at all. And not just like the end end, like the end sequence, which I think you agree with me on. Yeah, like the yeah, final right. 10 or 15 minutes. But I think the last third of the movie, it starts to not feel as interesting as the first two thirds. I do agree with that. But there's different segments of the film. There's the segment where he's still at his apartment, which is completely insane. And then there's a segment where he's staying in the house 
of a married couple played by Nathan Lane and Amy Ryan, two people from Only Murders in the Building, by the way. Mm. They have a teenage daughter as well. That's its own segment, which is also insane, but then that morphs into his journey in the woods, which involves an animated kind of segment of the film. Yeah, which is interesting, but I thought that went on a little too long. That went on a little long, and then everything after that, even though after that you do get the the great Parker Posey nudity, which is shocking and <laughs> yeah. unbelievable and Its great. own experience. Yeah. Everything at that point, it got, uh, you walk that line, and I think that everyone who dabbles in surreal stuff, whether you're a master at it like David Lynch or you're dipping your toes in it for the first time, which I wouldn't say that Ari Aster is dipping his toes in it. There's definitely surreal elements in his other films, but yeah, yeah. this is his most surreal. Oh, Absolutely. And Sometimes it just gets a little bit too much. And I think that if I'm being 100% honest, I don't really know what to make of the last hour of the film. I have no idea what's supposed to be real or not anymore. I know. And Well, you could say that through its entirety, but... Yeah, really... you can. You definitely can, but you feel like you know what's not real for uh, yes, a while. Yeah. And then <laughs> you start... As you go on, that gets harder and harder. And then it reaches a point where... There's stuff that happens in that last hour where I'm kind of like, okay. Yeah. The discovery in the attic. <laughs> that almost made me like want to be like, all right. I know, I know. That felt very A24 to me. Yeah. <laughs> Which it was an A24 movie, but right. I was like, oh, God. I don't want to give away specific spoilers or anything, but I think it's worth checking out. Oh, I don't definitely. know if people are going to have the patience to actually go to the theater for that, this. That is tough. The fact that it was an IMAX is completely insane. I know. So that was a fun experience, though. That was the first time I was in an IMAX theater in quite a while. Because it's been more the yeah, Dolby. Although I do think the, the one, at the IMAX at AMC kind of stinks. Yeah. Compared to the The old Cinemark. Pittsburgh Mills one. Yeah. Yeah. But whatever. Yeah. It's definitely one that people are going to discover when it hits streaming. I don't know where A24, I guess A24 a lot of times goes through Showtime. Yeah. So it may end up on Paramount Plus or something. Mm-hmm. But when this hits streaming... There's going to be a second wave of people fucking debating this movie because, you know, right now everyone's sort of all over the map. Well, it's definitely one of those movies that's like, listen, anybody that says this is too fucking weird for me, I can't get into this. I think this stinks. I'm never going to argue with that person. (laughs) You know what I mean? Of course. Lindsay. Yeah. I'm sure that was a fun ride home. (laughs) Yeah, she had some she had a fun time with it, too. Although there were definitely parts during the movie where she looked over and was just like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) I happened to listen to a podcast where someone had seen it, and it's a podcast that I trust for a lot of movie stuff. And I will say that he probably did give away a little bit too much because I did know the vibe. Like, nothing really surprised me about it. I kind of knew what to expect beat by beat in a way without specific spoilers, but like, I kind of knew everything about it to a certain extent, including the Parker Posey stuff, which. I Oof. made sure not to spoil. For yeah, you I, I was like fell I was out of like, my Matt's chair. Definitely going to be into this. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was basically like a barbarian experience for me, where I went in really not knowing what it was going to be like. Yeah. And that was a fun way of experiencing it. I don't know what people are going to think of it. He also has the curse of making two horror films for his first for two films, yeah. which may- means you're a horror director. Whether you're directing horror or not, which right. means that there's going to be a lot of people that see the movie and be like, this is fucking stupid. This isn't scary. And they're judging it by that. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what they think it's going to be. 
And there are parts of the film which make you think it is kind of a horror movie. I know. It's not, but there's enough DNA there where if someone's expecting it to be horror and then they see that, they're going to think, this is a shitty horror movie. They're not going to think, oh, this isn't a horror movie. Right. (laughs) Although there are a lot of laughs where the audience was laughing. Yeah. There's an absurdity to it and everything and... You have to chuckle at the plate. I guess the only thing I was thinking was, holy shit, between Hereditary and Bo is Afraid, imagine being Ari Aster's mother. I'm assuming that they have some sort of a weird relationship. Or, yeah, yeah, it does seem like I don't that know comes if his across parents in his are films. alive or what. Yeah. But this was such a fucking specific feeling I know. thing. I saw some people on Letterboxd who gave it terrible reviews and being like, he should have just had a conversation with his mother instead of making this. <laughs> Which I always think is funny because I'm like, yeah. well, that's sort of the whole point of art is to be able to do Express that kind of stuff. something, yeah. Yeah. I, well, most Letterboxd users don't I understand know. art or anything about it. <laughs> yeah, so Evil Dead Rise, Bo is Afraid, both in theaters now. I would say check them both out. There's other stuff I want to see too, but man, they just make it real fucking hard these days. Every movie theater seems like they're only open for like six hours a day around here. You I have know. to time it all right now. It's a sad state of affairs. We used to be spoiled. We didn't know how good we had it ten years ago when you could just go to a movie at any time and never like if we wanted to go tonight, right now, it's ten forty four on a Monday night. Twenty years ago oh, yeah. we could go to that same theater we go to all the time now that closes at like seven o'clock. <laughs> There would be like an 11.30 on a Monday night, yeah, definitely. And now, now I'm not saying that there should be, because if you don't have the employees, and I doubt there would be an audience for it, but it just it makes it harder for us. I know. Not that we're trying to go at 10.45, but if we want to go at 7 to see the Air Jordan movie, yeah, yeah, we can't fucking do it at our theater. We'll just go to a theater and go to sleep if we're going at 10.45. <laughs> Folks. Okay, so do we want to do a mailbag I segment? think so, because I did drag this package over here. All right. All right. All right, you go ahead. You go ahead. You keep it secret. But you remember this. When you control the mail, you control information. So this is a first for the program. We're yeah, going to yeah. do a physical mailbag segment, not yeah. an email segment, but... Matt has yeah, brought a gift for uh, us. Yes, from longtime listener, longtime friend, Keith. Otis uh, Keith hasn't been hitting up that tip jar, though. Yeah, yeah. So well, he decided to do this. I know. A gift for the show. And um, he texted me and let me know that he was sending me something and said, well, it's for you and Zach, the podcast team. Yeah. And I was like, oh, boy. This I hope it's a wallet full of cash. A wide array. I'm, I'm thinking that it's not that, but... <laughs> It, it is it a box with show. multiple packages, and there is a note, so I will read. Did you proofread this note? There's nothing weird in it. I didn't proofread it, no. I just saw that there was a note, and I was like, okay, I think we can do this on the show. So we'll see how this goes. You can cut it out if there's anything weird. Matt and Zach, I hope Oh, this... no, it's too weird. <laughs> we don't know who you are, Keith. <laughs> I hope this letter finds you well. When I was listening to your recent episode of the pod on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles... I was blown away by Zach's rendition of Coming Out of Our Shells. I have Mm. fond memories of watching this VHS tape as a child and wanted Zach to have it. So the first thing is this. Oh, no. Turtles Tour VHS, which I still feel like I have a 
faint memory that maybe I went to this, but the live stage show. I, I don't know. That, I it. could be making that up. Okay. We have a VHS copy yeah. of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the Coming Out of Their Shells tour, live stage show featuring Shredder and Splinter, the complete bodacious live 90-minute stage show direct from New York City. Yeah, wow, that's a collector's item. Look, even on the back of this VHS, you can't tell the difference between some of the colors. <laughs> the two that are the same, though, are red and purple this Yeah, time. they did really screw that up. Also, so Matt doesn't feel left out, I'm giving Matt a copy of Phantasm on VHS. Oh! Yeah, how about that? Well, Matt, you can hand that to me as well. I thought you, you have that one. definitely don't have a VCR. Yeah, but I thought you have Phantasm already. I don't. That's pretty fucking sweet. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Sealed. <laughs> well, Matt, what are you going to do with that, by the way? Don't worry about it. Well, Do I think for all the Blu-rays I've given you. All right. We'll talk <laughs> off mic. Don't ever stop doing the pod. Loyal ass clown, Keith. The only way we're going to stop doing the pod is if Matt fucks it up. P.S. I want you guys to arm wrestle for the Jimmy action figure here from Pulp Fiction. Oh, so we got Jimmy from Pulp Fiction action figure. Does it say the N-word a bunch of times? Um, uh, yes. Yeah, make it, everyone can uncomfortable. Can you squeeze his hand and that's what it says? <laughs> <laughs> Although this is kind of cool, too. All right, Keith. Well, listen, we appreciate you. I think you're one of a select few listeners that's actually gone to a movie theater with us, so you're in that elite class. Yeah, I remember seeing Inherent Vice with Keith. That's right. Did you see anything else with him? There may have been one other one, but that's the one that sticks out in my mind. Yeah, well, that'll always stick out in my mind. Definitely. For a variety of reasons. Yeah, so uh, we appreciate it. It's opened up a whole new world for what... Um, Matt is willing to give his personal mailing address out over the show so that people can mail him stuff. I was thinking we'd give Bell's address. <laughs> Anthrax directly yeah. to Matt's house, please. <laughs> that <Thank> immediately. <laughs> well, thanks again, Keith. Yes, we don't really read a lot of handwritten notes on the program, but if you would like to have your email read on the show, greatestpod at gmail.com, please. And also follow us on Twitter at greatestpod. If you'd like a free sticker, you can let us know in either of those two places. Same thing for listener requests. We can work that out there. Finally, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. And I guess I should add, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Oh, yeah. Something that I sometimes fail to mention, but it is still the number one thing you can do, which is also free. And pretty easy and painless. It's a huge help. Definitely. If you do that, then that's... That keeps the lights on. Good enough. Yeah. Everything else is a bonus, really. Anyway, next up, we are going to take a one-week break from listener requests. Not from the show. Matt got excited. He was like, <laughs> holy shit, we have a week off. No, we don't. We're not doing a listener request next week. We're going to get back to them in May. We still got... Three more to go. I should have probably said this at the beginning of the show, but I'm saying it now. I'll probably have to tweet it or something because God knows not everyone's going to make it this deep. But we are now officially filled for July. So I know this is only April, but if you do a listener request now, we're looking at August. And again, maybe two slots. I don't know. Something like that. Maybe one or two in September. We're probably going to take a little bit of time off in September, though, so... Hallelujah. I know that's crazy that that's so far away, but there's a specific reason for that. Anyway, 
whatever. I'm just saying that because if you have a listener request and you're sitting on it, the longer you wait, the further off this gets because this has been way more popular than we were anticipating. I know. We're going to have to shut it down. And the slow start definitely was deceiving. We thought, oh, well, no one's really interested. And then all of a sudden. So we filled up a couple more slots in July. I'm going to do my best to make sure we do both of those in July. We're going to do what we can. We're looking at August now, if you're interested. If not, then don't worry about it. Or if you're fine with waiting, if you're thinking, well, they're busy now and I'll just wait. Well, yeah, I'm sure at some point they will run dry. I don't think there's a limitless amount of people who are interested in this. So if you want to wait, go ahead. But I'm just telling you, we're in August now for listener requests. So (laughs) there it is. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Aaron for this listener request. We really appreciate the support. It means a lot. I think... Matt and I are actually inching closer to death. New microphones. I oh, okay. Say, wow. With this money that has come in for the show from yeah, these yeah, that's requests. right. We're gonna upgrade the quality. And if you don't feel like paying the full fifty dollars for an LR, then just hit us up on that tip jar. Five bucks, ten bucks, we take it all. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> One cent. Love to see a little bit more of those contributions <laughs> rather than just the listener requests. In other words, I'd like money for nothing. I don't know. This listener request thing. It's for all the time you put into the show, Zach. All right, folks. Let's wrap it up. We'll talk to you later. Thanks so much for listening.
What if you were giving a eulogy for me? What would you say? Oh, come on, Blanche. No, I'm serious, Dorothy. What would you say? Well, I... I guess I'd say that you were a lovely, generous person and, you know, one of the best friends I ever had. Nothing about my looks. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd say that you were one of the prettiest friends. One of? The Blanche. <laughs> The prettiest. What would you say about me? Dorothy, come on. I told you. You can tell me. All right. Well, I would say I always felt safe having you in the house. <laughs> and I would say I always enjoyed talking to you when I'd come home from one of my numerous dates. And I would say, I always looked up to you like an older sister. Thank you, Blanche. Mm. Oh, and I forgot one thing. I would also say you're fat. 